and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic episode 68. I'm Nick Dixon here with Toby Young and we're back in the studio this week, i.e. the shed. And coming up, Eddie Izzard loses an election, Aviva loses its mind over white men, and British Airways loses all credibility by removing a Jewish sitcom, plus loads more, and of course, peak woke. But Toby, I thought we'd do a quick recap. Actually, two things. Firstly, I'm not very well. Just flagging that, everyone. I'm going to do my best, but my lymph nodes are severely enlarged. I'm exhausted. And I could talk about it at length, as you know, but I won't. I'll spare you, but I'm just flagging it at the start. And secondly, the Weekly Skeptic Live was a massive success last week, and I thought we'd recap it briefly. One thing I noted listening back was that you couldn't tell how many people were there. It was actually a full venue of many, many people, many people on many sides. But you couldn't quite tell from the recording, even though it was a crisp recording, you couldn't quite tell how many audience were there. So I want to flag that. But I listened back to it, and I was actually really impressed. I was like, this is hilarious. This is actually brilliant. I mean, I knew it. I thought at the time it was good. Listening back, I was like, this was actually really good. What did you think, Tom? Yeah, I thought it was really good. I think um, probably our two live podcasts have been the best ones we've done. And I think this one was better than the previous one. Um, You were fantastic. Um, Very funny at the beginning, albeit at my expense. Um, But um, uh, funny throughout. Um, And as you as you say, it's hard to. It's quite it's quite kind of annoying when you listen back to it. You can't you you don't hear that roar of laughter from the live audience. But believe me, they were roaring. It just doesn't quite it isn't quite captured in the audio recording. Um, But it was great. And yeah, we 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 we, we're planning to do another one in February. Um, At one point, I I tried it, but I was so excited afterwards i try to persuade you to do it once a week so from now on we just do live recordings of um the weekly skeptic but as you rightly pointed out we probably wouldn't be able to fill um the downstairs bar of the hippodrome every week so uh let's make it bi-monthly for the time being so the next one will be in february we possibly could yeah but then, then it was weird because then i suggested every month but you suddenly switched to bi-monthly i was like hang on toby's gone from every week to once every two months what's wrong with every month but yeah, we seem to have loosely agreed uh, February for the next one. Yeah, and someone reviewed it and called it the funniest thing I've heard in ages. So that's great. So thank you to everyone that came and everyone that came to the meal. Sorry if I didn't speak to everyone. I tried to, and I always feel bad about that if I don't speak to everyone. Next time, I'm just going to speak to everyone. Just just give them like five minutes each or just like a speed dating or something. Yeah, I know. It was great. Um, I, I got a lot of positive feedback from people who came. I think, you know, people who bought tickets thought it was you know great value for money where else can you get a you know two-hour show in the west end for 25 quid so yeah i think uh people seem very happy afterwards yeah and and people said it was not only was it funny but we we were inspiring them and things like that which is amazing to hear it's great we can do that and of course i'm happy to try and do that even while i remain incredibly miserable on a personal level that's the paradox but um but i was actually quite positive in the show as well about where, we ha- where we're heading, because I just believe we're going to beat Woke. And some people were quite blackpilled coming up to me, and I was like, no, no, I think we're going to win this thing. There's still lots about Britain that's a disaster, but I've just got this feeling we're going to beat Woke. But not quite yet, because we've just had, and I thought we'd kick off with this, Toby, Aviva talking about uh, senior white men recruited for jobs have to be vetted first by the firm's first female chief executive, women in the workplace. It was only going to end one way. Amanda Blanc. And I've suggested her mind is completely blank. So this is Amanda Blanc, and she um, she says it has to all be diverse. I want to make sure the process followed for that recruitment has been diverse, has been properly done, and it's not just a phone call to a mate to say, would you like a job, pop up, and we'll fix it for you. And she keeps going on about diverse hires and non-diverse. There is no non-diverse hire at Aviva without it being signed off by me and the chief 
people officer. And I find that so weird, the way of talking about people as non-diverse. Hello, diverse hire. Have you seen where the coffee machine is yet? It's like, you know, it's like, welcome, diverse hire. Stop calling them diverse hires or non-diverse hires. It's such a weird way. It's dehumanizing even for the so-called diverse people. But it's particularly dehumanizing for the white men that can't get the jobs. And the hilarious part of it all is this was a response to sexism in the industry. So it's it's destroying and stamping out sexism by being sexist and racist, Toby. Yes, reverse sexism and reverse racism, all in one neat package um, by a woman whose surname means white in French. Maybe that's why she's so determined to um, promote diversity, lest people think that her surname in any way describes her attitude. Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was, um, it was, I suppose, you know, um, what we've come to expect now from senior members of the professional managerial class. Um but as you say, it felt like, um, you know, this sort of thing, it was kind of current in 2018, 2019, wasn't it? It sort of, it, it, I guess it was it was cutting edge. It felt a bit kind of, uh, you know, brave in a way um, for these senior executives to talk about their diversity initiatives back then, you know, in the kind of, uh, when, 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 when woke was still in the kind of foothills of conquering the corporate world. But after it metastasized, during the BLM imbroglio and kind of uh, escaped from the academy and, you know, became like a kind of viral pandemic to match the actual pandemic. Um, Saying it now feels a bit old hat, doesn't it? It feels like she's, you know, a bit like a vicar kind of uh, going to the school disco um, and trying to be down with the kids. It's like she's saying it as though, you know, she, this makes her cutting edge and progressive and courageous, whereas in fact it's just become a, a hoary old cliche now. And you know, it, and there was quite a lot of pushback. I think you know, three four years ago there wouldn't have been anything like the pushback. She's had quite a lot of you know Mickey taken out of her as a consequence of saying this. So all quite encouraging. It's like uh, you know, it feels like the, it does feel. I mean, I wouldn't say that 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 kind of diversity and inclusion initiatives in the workplace are in their death throes. I mean, it's clearly kind of uh, uh, kind of reached the kind of pandemic phase, but it, it certainly feels like it's no longer in such robust good health as it once was. And this, this feels like, you know, it just feels like a bit tired, a bit old hat, a bit like kind of yesterday's way of trying to promote yourself as a high status member of the professional managerial class. Absolutely. The backlash has begun. And as I've said elsewhere, institutions and companies are lagging behind public opinion. Public opinion has said, no, we've had enough of this, get lost. Whereas they're still doing it going, aren't we great? And we're going, no, you're not great. You're actually awful. Because to believe in these things, you have to buy into a set of beliefs, which are critical race theory and so on. You have to believe that that, that white men have privilege. You have to believe that, you know, even even though obviously many of them don't, and you have to believe that you can fix that and that fixing that is a good thing. So you have to believe all these things, which unless you're part of the radical left, why do you believe those things? You shouldn't. They're stupid. They're wrong. They're not meritocratic. They're evil. But you, people have just got used to habitually following them as if they're just doing something neutral or obviously good, like it's, it's you know, save puppies day. It's like, no, no, you're discriminating against people in a racist way, you scumbags. And people are starting to notice that. And white people, white men or white people or just concerned citizens have lost their fear of speaking out about it. And there was one statement I wish I could find from the company where they they said, you yeah, know, we want the best person for the job and we want to be diverse. I'm like, 
no, those are opposites. Like you, you, <laughs> you can't be like, I'm coming to the party and I'm not coming. Like, no, that's a choice. You either want the best person or you want to push quotas. Those are not, yeah. you can't have both by just putting and in there. Yeah, no, that, that, that's one of the um, uh, persistent features of um, diversity, equity and inclusion. The pretense that there's no trade-off between equity and merit, um, that the two completely complement one another, when clearly uh, there is a very explicit trade-off and you have to opt for equity over merit. One of the surprising things about this, Nick, was um, the implication that um, selling life insurance is now a high-status profession. You know, I'm not going to let these privileged, Oxbridge-educated, old Etonian aristocrats with titles who are related to Jacob Rees-Mogg um, just walk into one of these plum positions as a door-to-door life insurance salesman. It's like a bit of a <laughs> bit of a weird disconnect there. I mean, how many people apply for these jobs in the first place? I would have thought she'd be desperate for anyone to apply, whether white or any other colour, uh, because I imagine yeah. there's a labour shortage. Who wants to sell life insurance these days? We're, you know, it's, it's really how, it, this is the reason we've got such high levels of immigration because none of our indigenous population, none of the privileged white native Britons want to do these boring jobs anymore. Yeah, great point. She made it sound like this uh, old boys club. Oh, the old boys network at Aviva. Yeah, <laughs> what are you on yeah. about? It's a rude one <laughs> rubbish job. Yeah, apparently she's a pioneer in the sector, which is hilarious. And apparently she'd warned that sexism in the financial services sector is worse than in the wider society. And that made me think of uh, an old Bill Hicks show. I think he's talking about Bush Sr. And he, sa- he says that we live in a dangerous world. He's like, because of you, you fucker. It's like... We look like sexism is bad in the financial industry. Yeah, because of you, you you've just you've just initiated an overtly sexist policy. Anyway, sorry to swear there, but it was in the original joke. Um, so that was annoying yet encouraging that people are, are sick of it. And on a similar note, there was a similar story in America from Red Hat, which is a subsidiary of IBM. And James O'Keefe has been breaking this, formerly of Project Veritas. Now he has his own thing called OMG, uh, O'Keefe Media Group, and. They had this fascinating thing called the Allyship Commandments. In case anyone was in any doubt that wokeness is a religion of sort or a cult, I, I prefer, but a 10 race-based rules that employees must observe. And I've got them here with me. And this was exposed. Your allyship, one, openly acknowledges privilege and systemic racism exist and result in trauma. Two, never question the reality of our black friends and colleagues. Three, reject the idea that race is political. That's weird. Four, accept that white people are responsible for dismantling racism. Five, understands only white people are racist. (laughs) Lol. Six, knows the black community owes us nothing in this work. Seven, requires acknowledgement and repair of inevitable mistakes. Eight, is never rooted in white saviorism, even though the whole thing seems like it is that. Nine, sees the black community as a group of individuals and not a monolith. Ten, does not seek recognition or praise for a job well done. You should never seek praise uh, in the workplace for doing a, a good job. So... Absolutely insane. And then and then another thing broke, I think today even, new internal slides within IBM's Red Hat explains how whiteness works. Whiteness constructs the game, hides the rules, then rigs the game over and over again. So just this hardcore CRT-based racism at this IBM subsidiary, Toby. Yes, um, not shocking. Um, <laughs> it's uh, the, the, the woke mind virus um, uh, seems to be uh, particularly prevalent um, in STEM fields. There's this kind of horror that um, people who want to work in 
STEM fields are predominantly male um, and um, predominantly white or Jewish or Asian um, and not nearly enough people of colour, BIPOCs, um, women want to work in these fields. Um, uh, but, you know, it, it feels like just um, the choices that people are making reflecting group differences um, and not any systemic prejudice or discrimination within the fields. But it, it reminds me of, um, you know, remember that guy, James Damore, who was fired by Google uh, for producing a memo in which he pointed out that the reason there weren't more female software engineers at Google um, was to do with um, underlying average differences between the sexes. Um, women, on average, are more interested in people. Men, on average, are more interested in, more interested in things. There's quite a lot of um, evidence, quite a lot of psychological literature to support this fundamental distinction. And uh, that's why you know women go into um, fields like nursing and teaching more often than men, and men go into you know, engineering um, and rocket science more often than women. It's not because they're, they're, they're discriminated against and prevented from seeking employment in these fields or securing employment. It's just because on average, they have different interests. And, you know, it, it's it's no, no amount of allyship is going to fundamentally change that. Um, one fear I have, Nick, is that, you know, it's quite easy to kind of poke fun at the kind of um, uh, willed, ignorance of the woke trying to explain these discrepancies um, by claiming that they point to underlying systemic discrimination, prejudice, racism, sexism, misogyny, etc. It's quite easy to poke fun at them, to laugh at them. Um, uh, but what if one day they realise actually probably these outcome discrepancies, these disproportionate um, uh, the, the, these, 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 dis- the, the, the fact that there aren't more women employed in STEM fields, etc., is to do with these underlying psychological group differences. Um, maybe if if they finally wake up to that fact um, and stop blaming, you know, um, uh, prejudice, prejudice and discrimination, then they might actually start start suggesting that we actually do genetic engineering to eliminate these group differences. And that would actually be worse than the kind of pointless initiatives they're coming up with, like the Ten Commandments of allyship. I mean, at least these things are kind of, you know, are, are, are relatively harmless compared to what they might be able to do in genetic laboratories if they figure out the real reason for these group discrepancies. I didn't think of that, Toby, but I'm glad you've... <laughs> Posited that they could go full eugenics, woke eugenics. Yeah. We need to breed women who want to go into STEM. Let's breed women engineers, exactly. everyone. What a sick idea. Yeah, women engineers bred in a kind of those those fake wombs, you know, those rooms we've seen that don't exist yet, but those incubators, just, full, just a room full of just artificially raised matrix babies, and they're all STEM lesbians. <laughs> Would they not be lesbians? Yeah. That, I mean, would that be wrong? Would it be proven that straight women can be mothers and STEM people? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, Thank you. I think they'd, they'd um, I, I, I suppose, um, to a certain extent, you'd have to allow parental choice. So, to, I mean, this is already happening. So the extremely wealthy are already kind of taking advantage of, you know, genomics to... Um, try and have children that are likely to be successful and likely to possess what they consider to be desirable psychological characteristics, such as, you know, 
drive, ambition, high intelligence, openness to experience, etc. Um, uh, but um, uh, and may, but I, I guess if you allow, and most of course, most of these 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 rich parents are incredibly woke. But I imagine you could probably find out what kind of characteristics they'll be selecting for in these laboratories um, just by doing a survey of those who are currently taking advantage of this technology. But actually, what this technology when it when it comes on stream um, more widely will do is simply exacerbate the enormous advantages the kind of privileged already enjoy um, so even though it'll be presented as you know a bid to create a fairer society in which women are better represented in fields like software design and engineering um, actually it'll just entrench the privilege of the kind of woke overclass yeah um, well, luckily, it hasn't happened yet, Toby. So, um, as it as it stands, conservatives are actually going to win because I think I think it's uh, conservatism and religiosity are tied with higher birth rates. Uh, I think they'll I think that's correct. So, unless they start this dastardly eugenics, uh, we should be all right. But as you say, they probably will. They'll probably start it soon. So, I don't know. Write in and let us know what you think. Um, should we uh, move on and do our third story in in the whiteness trilogy, which is more of an update, really, from Nihal Thingy from the BBC, who famously said that the presence of white people was destroying his mental health. Well, he's piped up again. He hasn't really stopped piping up on this since he started. He keeps digging his hole. He said, I saw a lack of diversity in my workplace over a long period of time. It affected me, with an E, and it was isolating and lonely. Yet all these GBBs loving types made me to be an anti-white racist. If a single one of them think I'm going to be quiet, they are even more stupid, dot, dot, dot. Someone wrote affected, not effected, BBC standards. And then, insanely, he wrote, it is not an affectation, it is an effect. So he doubled down, and we can all make a typo, but he doubled down on his stupidity. And that's when I realized, oh, he's just thick. It's like, we've been debating this guy. What did he mean? Why did he say this? Oh, he's a moron. He, he thinks he, someone points out, unless he's trying to make a joke there, if you're being very generous. But I think it's just been exposed. He doesn't know the difference between affected and effected. And we've just been worrying for this last week about just a stone cold moron. What do you think, Toby? Yeah. Uh, odd that he didn't like when, when the mistake was pointed out to him, that he didn't Google it and kind of uh, work out first whether he'd made a mistake before responding. I mean, that's what I would have done. Um, but no, he just, as you say, doubled down on his original error, which made him look quite stupid. Um, what did he mean about the GBBs turning him into a white racist? Did he, did, I mean, sorry, an anti-white racist. Is he effectively acknowledging there that he is now an anti-white racist? I thought that was what he was disputing. No, he just missed a word. He said because of his, uh, again, his low IQ, he said, yeah, all these GBBs loving types made me to be an anti-white racist. So he's missed out the word out, presumably, made me out to I be yep. an anti-white racist. So okay. he's saying he, he isn't one. And then, and then he starts the next sentence with a, with a capital I, but he hasn't put a full stop. The whole thing's a, a shitstorm, basically. He should delete his account, shouldn't he? Um, he's yeah. really not doing yeah. himself yeah. any favours. <laughs> delete your account. I know it's not worked out at all. But there was quite an interesting... Um, take on this from Tez Ilias, who is a comedian who I knew for many years in comedy. But he says, what's so funny is that this site is full of, I got on the bus and was only the only white face and I was so intimidated and uncomfortable tweets, yet they cannot perform the mental gymnastics that this is what people like Nihal go through every single min of their professional lives. Now, the problem with Tez's tweet there 
is that he's opened up a world where he's saying it's okay to say things like that. So the whole point is, yes, you do see tweets like, oh, am I the only white person now in the country and blah, blah, and London has no white, but whatever it is, but they're frowned upon. So the whole thing Nihal opens up here is he's allowed to just say, well, I'm sick of all these white people around affecting my mental health. And why everyone's outraged is because it's over racism and because it would never be allowed the other way around. But if we are going to play by those rules, which Ted seems to be suggesting, then people are just going to start saying, well, I'm just sick of all these brown people around. It's affecting my mental health. Because that's what Ted is saying. He's saying, we already have tweets like that, and yet that's Nihal's whole life. Yeah, but he's openly saying it, Tez, and, 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 and saying he's in the right and he's comfortable saying it at a conference. How would you feel if there was a conference about white people in media and they said, yeah, I'm just so uncomfortable with other races around? I mean, you'd go mental, let's be very honest. So, But if you want to play by those rules, then that's what we're going to end up with. But I don't think it's going to be very pleasant. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, I think either everyone should be able to um, express their anxiety about being surrounded by people of a different ethnicity, if it does make them feel anxious, um, or nobody should. Um, but um, uh, a two-tier standard in which um, it's okay to say how anxious you're made by white people if you're black or brown, but not vice versa, is not going to make for a very healthy society. It's just going to increase resentment and grievance um, amongst white people. Um as well as, you know, license other black and brown people to say it. Do you, do you think that he really did feel psychologically um, affected, spelt correctly, um, by being surrounded by too many white people? I mean, or was he just, was he just kind of status signaling? Was he just saying something, you know, he thought would um, uh, get him taken seriously and sympathised with? Uh, by the audience he was addressing, and is this why he's continuing on Twitter and doubling down because he thinks he's, you know, he's he's fairly persuaded that this is a reliable high status indicator. It'll enhance his professional standing. It's not likely to get him fired. If anything, it'll get him promoted. Um, and 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 when he engages in these kind of spats with white supremacists like you and Constantine, um, that will just further enhance his status and make him a hero to the kind of, you know, um, professional managerial class. And he will eventually end up running the BBC. Um, Or do you think he actually feels this way, that when he walks into his office in Salford and sees a few white faces, that it actually does make him feel psychologically uncomfortable and um, anxious and ill at ease? I think it's certainly possible. I mean, if you were in a workplace like that and he's like, hang on, there's no people from my background here and you could feel uncomfortable, why not? I mean, if that's how he feels... Uh, the, the, but like as I said on a previous episode, the strain, the thing was just he felt so comfortable saying it because he knows, you know, he, or he felt, and it turns out to be incorrect now in 2023. But he felt that's just the kind of thing you can say, and like you say, will be high status. So it's a little bit of both. I think he perhaps, perhaps he did feel like that. But the, his shock was that you can't just say it in the same way anymore. Or if you can, it's going to be controversial. He he's used to it being completely safe to just say anything at all about white people. But I don't doubt why doubt that he, he felt that way. If that's how he felt, that's how he felt. Well I guess if you think um that is genuinely how he felt and he's not um pretending to have felt that way to enhance his status and promotional prospects, um then there's a second question which is have black and brown people in predominantly white workplaces always felt like that? 
but have only recently, you know, been permitted um, to share those feelings? Or have they only begun to feel that way because workplaces have become racialized as various diversity, equity and inclusion training has been you know, imposed, made mandatory. So, you know, if they, they if, if black and brown people are attending endless workplace workshops in which they're told that they're oppressed, that white people are privileged, that all white people are racists, you can see how, you know, having been taught the rudiments of critical race theory, they might then feel uncomfortable because they're walking into a workplace in which they're surrounded effectively by members of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, but, uh, do you think that prior to, you know, the embedding of D.I.E. nonsense in workplaces, they also felt this way, but just were too inhibited to speak about it? No, it's a good question. I mean, my guess is maybe they did, but I, I'm trying to avoid the Scott Adams thing. He talks about of mind reading. I'm thinking why, why, I know we sometimes do it for fun on the podcast, but I'm thinking why mind read him? If he says this, why not take him at face value? And the strange thing, yeah, that where he's got it, where he's misjudged it is, is that there's now a, more of a backlash against over anti-white racism. Because obviously it is racist to say they affect my mental health. Unless, unless you go down a path, as I've said, of just saying, well, it doesn't, nothing's racist then, or we can all just be racist and get over it or something. But, but we all know that wouldn't be the case. We all know the reverse would be completely outrageous. Of course, you could have a world, as I've just said, where you can, we, anyone can say anything like that. And then maybe men can say, well, I'm sick of all these women in the workplace, guys. It's really affecting my mental health. It probably is how quite a lot of men feel if they've been me too a few times or something or whatever. I don't know. Maybe everyone, you know, loads of people hate other people in the workplace, but they don't okay, say it. Slightly they? different question. Slightly different question. Yeah. What would cast him in a poorer light? A, believing that he actually is made anxious and made to feel uncomfortable and psychologically ill by being surrounded by people of a different ethnicity to him, or B, um, he doesn't actually feel any of those things, but is pretending to be racist because that's actually a way <laughs> of enhancing his status. <laughs> which which casts yeah. him in a poorer light? Do you think? Well, the more Machiavellian version, or the kind of any yeah. of this. But um, <laughs> I didn't know you were going to hit me with hard questions when I'm feeling really rough. But here's here's my answer. <laughs> Here's my answer. Uh, number two is far worse. Because now, personally, I don't go around the office going, oh, I don't think about the race of the people. I really don't. I just get on. I think who's the nice people in the office and who who isn't. And it, I've found it's nothing to do with race. If I think about it now, I can think it's definitely not, not related to race. So it's just related to whether you're nice to me, basically. And that's my whole criteria. But I think the second one would be worse in your hypothetical because in one of them, he's merely just, that's how he feels. And you can say it's racist, but that's, if that's how he feels, that's how he feels. And I would at least appreciate the honesty of something, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's a bad thought to have, at least, he, at least he's just saying it, right? There's actually some integrity to that. The second one would be awful because it's pretending to be racist to virtue signal is just is obscene. Yeah, so, so you think, you think be better to be racist than to be someone who pretends to be racist to win brownie points? I think probably, well, probably, the way you, when, you put, when you put it like that, it's, like, it's a tricky one. Um, I think so, because at least the first person has has honesty on their side. The second person is very Machiavellian. The first person, just an unreconstituted racist who just feels, this is how I feel, guys. There's a sort of, they're an innocent. They're like, oh, I hate, these white people are making me feel terrible. Does anyone else feel that way? There's something, you know what I mean? 
It's like when Pearl, people hate Pearl, Pearl Davis, but she's just speaking her mind and kind of without guile. And I always appreciate somebody who does that. So if Nihal was doing that, but, but then again, like you say, it doesn't seem, it seems like there is something more sinister afoot. But I'm sort of actually, I'm winning, I'm winning myself around to him now. He really is someone that just speaks his mind and just, you know. <laughs> but yeah, there is, I don't, maybe I'm, I'm not sure that that is the answer now. I think probably there was something a bit more Machiavellian, but he was virtue. Now I think he maybe was just virtue signaling in a, in a room where it was kind of cool to say something like that. Yeah, I think I think he sort of boxed himself into a ridiculous, indefensible position. I think he he said something to virtue signal, which you know, um, until recently was a tried and tested way of kind of winning over the audience um, and enhancing your status within your profession, particularly in the media. Um, but um, this time it caused a bit of a backlash. Uh, so he's having to pretend he wasn't just kind of being being kind of manipulative um, and virtue signaling. He's having to pretend that this is how he really feels and this is how black people have always felt and brown people have always felt um, uh, uh, and white people have just always been insensitive to it. And he's sort of making himself look more and more stupid, which he's not struggling with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've, I've definitely worked with white people who have negatively affected my mental health. So I think probably I'm a, an anti-white racist as well when I think about it. But I just I just didn't I think it was because it, of their it, it, race, it, it, but maybe it was. When I think about, you know, um, when I've when I've worked in offices, um, I haven't noticed the skin colour of my colleagues, um, uh, you know, and I don't think that's just because I'm a privileged white person and therefore I can afford to ignore it um but one thing i have noticed i've noticed kind of who the most attractive people are um and there certainly is kind of i've noticed pretty privilege operating in workplaces um and of course that's that's the kind of um logical conclusion of um uh, genetically engineering people um to all start on a level playing field with exactly the same interests is you'd kind of you 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 I mean also I mean you can imagine if people who really are committed to equity diversity and inclusion uh, and particularly equity who don't want anyone to enjoy any privileges um uh, which which they haven't in any way earned no privileges based on their um, immutable characteristics um, that they would. You know, the logical extension of that is: well, you take the people with pretty privilege and you force them to have plastic surgery to disfigure them and make them less attractive, so they won't be able to enjoy that privilege anymore. It's the equivalent of you know of the head of Aviva penalising white employees. You know, I'm going to have to grill these people. They're going to have to meet a higher bar than non-white applicants for jobs because they're privileged. Similarly, you could say um, anyone who's, you know, above average in attractiveness um, will have to undergo some sort of procedure so they'll no longer enjoy any sort of advantage. And I can be sure that I'm not employing them because they're attractive, but just because they are uh, the best person for the job. (laughs) You're absolutely right. If they're going to follow their current quota system, they need to start making hot people ugly. But in your other dystopia, the, the STEM, the sort of matrix STEM babies you were talking about, wouldn't they then just mm. make them all good looking? Wouldn't they just genetically engineer a sort of good looking, biromantic, asexual, like the woman at Disney, although she wasn't that good looking, but they'd do it, a good looking, black, biromantic, asexual engineer. Wouldn't everyone just be that? I suppose in the genetically engineered, woke version of Brave New World, um, <laughs> White people would not only be stupid, 
um, uh, they'd also be ugly and they'd also have no interest in, uh, they'd have no ambition, no drive. They'd just be interested in jobs in the care sector um, or becoming primary school teachers. Um, all the jobs that kind of women currently enjoy and are overrepresented in, um, those would have to be the jobs that, the only jobs that um, in this dystopian future white people were suited to and interested in um and the most ambitious most attractive people would all be black and brown probably that toby but i'm struggling a bit because i've got my lymph glands are huge i'm exhausted we've got a bad connection and you've hit me with this stem eugenics plan (laughs) which i wasn't (laughs) expecting and and it's quite nuanced so i've uh, (laughs) i missed parts of that one but um the listener can decide uh, how it would work exactly um it's quite hellish. Uh, what, where, what would Nihal's position be, do you think? Recruitment? Well, Nihal probably thinks that, um, I mean, I don't know, but uh, he, he may think that uh, there's no need to intervene genetically to kind of level the playing field. He probably imagines that um, a, a completely fair workplace in which people are just recruited on merit uh, once you've kind of eliminated entrenched historical legacies um, would naturally favor people like him because they're naturally superior yes it'd be just naturally superior people who don't know the difference between affected and affected and don't like (laughs) white people and they'd be running everything what a utopia well on a similarly insane story, maybe we should do this one. British Airways apologises for upset and hurt over Jewish sitcom decision. So this concerns the sitcom Hapless, which my colleague Josh Howey is in. He has a minor role. I said that last night on the telly just to wind him up. And then I said, I don't know. I've only watched the trailer, to be fair. And that is true. <laughs> but apparently he has a, a, quite a big role in it. I'm sure he's very good in it. Um, and this sitcom was removed by British Airways in a really disturbing move it was purely because of the hamas israel conflict it's such a strange thing to do to take down a jewish sitcom because of that so now they've apologized but the apology is no better they say we understand the decision to review the content has caused upset and hurt to the jewish community and we're sorry that was never our intention we're proud to offer a wide range of entertainment options for our customers to enjoy and constantly review these taking into consideration current events the series will appear on our aircraft early next year so they won't have it out now because of the uh, the conflict but they didn't want to take sides in the conflict. It's such a strange... I mean, what a weird thing for British Airways. Firstly, you're not Emirates, okay? You can put on a Jewish sitcom, you weirdos. And even the director and writer, I understand he's being diplomatic, and he was the person that sort of drew attention to it, I believe. So I'm not really criticising, but I am criticising him slightly for his word choice. He said they were being overcautious, which was not a strong enough word. And then he said, this is uh, Gary Senior, and then he said... I think what it shows is a fear of being perceived as being pro-Israel just because it's got Jewish characters in it. Well, it does show that, but really that's not even... I suppose he's saying that's how they feel, not how he feels. But really it shouldn't matter whether they're pro-Israel or not. It should just be you're banning a Jewish sitcom. That's completely insane. I suppose he's right. That does reveal their fear. I'm realising I slightly misread this on the TV last night. That's their fear of being perceived as pro-Israel. But... But that is obviously completely absurd. And just one more thing to say about it is that it it comes from Sparfax or Spafax, maybe. They, these are the people that decided this, and they certainly sound like complete Spafax. They, they're the people that they are hired by British Airways. They're apparently a media specialist 
who decides what they should have on board and be what I mean, what a complete bunch of idiots. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, it's uh, it's it was quite a surprising misstep by British Airways, um, which I imagine will deeply antagonize many potential Jewish customers, or perhaps they're reasoning that we have many more Muslim customers than Jewish customers, and actually it'll make us more attractive to Muslim customers. But it's odd, isn't it? Because why would showing a sitcom um, set amongst you know Jews in London, um, why should that be conflated with support for Israel in the current conflict. I mean, many people who are critical of Israel um, in the conflict and who are pro-Palestinian vigorously dispute, passionately dispute um, that they're anti-Semitic. They say, no, you can be opposed to Israel. You can even be anti-Zionist, but not anti-Semitic. Okay, well, if that's true, then why have British Airways embrace the idea that if you're pro-Jewish, then that also means you're pro-Israel. I mean, either you separate those two things or you don't, but it seems to be almost that British Airways is accepting the very premise that the militant pro-Palestinian protesters adamantly reject, which is to keep separate uh, Jewishness with um, the state of Israel. Um, uh, it seems like British Airways is conflating these things. Um, uh, and I guess for those of us who think there is a strong anti-Semitic strain in a lot of the um, uh, support for the Palestinians, um, uh, this seems to be confirming that uh, because they're ex- effectively accepting the premise um, that if you're uh, a, that, 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 that there is this connection between being pro-Jewish and pro-Israel. Yeah, someone you're saying it's to do with the customers. Someone suggested to me it might be to do with the ownership of British Airways, but I don't know anything about that, so I don't know. I can't comment. Do you know much about the ownership? Is there a... No. Okay. Well, it could be the reason, but the listeners can let us know because I'm too well and Toby doesn't know either. But um, it's certainly pretty appalling. I mean, I'm amazed, I'm amazed at this. We're, we're used to this anti-whiteness, but when you see it affecting... Jewish people, I always find it just, I don't know if it's more disturbing, it's just maybe we're used to it. You just sort of, there is something disturbing about watching how far the woke will go. And we've seen it recently with those Ivy League universities and this Claudine Gay person who seems to be clinging on. Anyway, but they also have it in for Asians, don't they, when it comes to the admissions and so on. I'm not sure I have loads more on that. Do you have yeah. anything more on that, Toby? It was quite a small story. Go on. Well, just just to just to summarise the point I was making, because it was a bit garbled, I think that yeah. um, if you dispute that being anti-Israel implies you're anti-Jewish, then I don't see how you could possibly accept that being pro-Jewish implies you're pro-Israel. Um, you know, it seems like British Airways are effectively corroborating the claims by those who are uncomfortable about the pro-Palestinian protest, that there is a connection between the two things. And that um, if you are uh, sympathetic to the Jews and find Jewish comedy amusing, then by extension, you must be sympathetic to Israel and that the two things can't be kept separate, which is what the pro-Palestinians want us to do. Right. And I, and I did check uh, with Josh if there was like a sort of episode that was like, hey, we love Israel. And, you know, if there, if there was some overtly pro-Israel 
episode or something, you might you might have some kind of argument for it. It would still be terrible to, to ban it, but there isn't any such. You know, it's a sort of family sitcom about just general stuff. It's about it's about so, a, yeah, a cynical Jewish journalist. Wrong to, have you, uh, I haven't what. I haven't even seen the trailer, but isn't it about a cynical Jewish journalist um, who um, uh, moves to London to work as a reporter for something like the Jewish Chronicle and struggles to kind of adjust to living in London or something along those lines? He's writing for one of those kind of magazines. Yeah, I mean, you're just showing me up here that I haven't watched Josh's thing and I, I know I feel bad. Obviously, I mean, I don't even watch my own show. So, I mean, in a way, why would I be watching it? But I'm sure it's excellent. All right, well, that is that story. We struggle slightly at times there because of uh, Toby's connection, but he's actually switched to Starlink. He wasn't even using Elon Musk's great Starlink installed specially in the shed. So that's why we're having a few connection issues combined with my terrible illness issues, which I think I'll keep discussing. But we were struggling a bit there, but we'll, now we've got a super sharp connection. We'll press on and do... There's a constant battle to blame it on me, and I, I blame it on Toby. I'm in my new flat, which does have very crisp internet, and you've got your Starlink. So anyway, let's move on and do Eddie Izzard who's lost a bid to be Labour's candidate for Brighton Pavilion at the next general election. And uh, Susie Eddie Izzard, as the Daily Mail insists on calling him, but they insist on calling it her, which is completely absurd and loses the argument already. But it is quite notable that Izzard can't seem to win one of these things, tried to win in Sheffield, now fails, even in Brighton. And you do just think maybe people are a bit sick of a few things, maybe. One, someone who doesn't have a grasp on reality to wants to call themselves a gender and sex are obviously not. Or certainly a sex, obviously not, can't be bothered with the gender debate. But two, wants to invade women's spaces. And also you just sort of, we was, I don't know, maybe there's an element of pe- people suspect there's an attention element to it. You know, why was Eddie Izzard just not trans his whole life and was cross-dressing but not trans now suddenly is? Is there a trendy element? I don't know. I think people still are the same as they've ever been. They don't have a problem with trans people going about their lives who probably don't want loads of attention drawn to them, whereas, whereas Eddie Izzard, people just, I, I think people have, I don't know, I think people think maybe he's not quite mentally the kind of person they want running things. I don't know, so what do you think? Yeah, well, I always thought, perhaps unjustly, that, you know, 15 years ago, when Eddie Izzard started wearing high heels and lipstick, you know, dabbling in cross-dressing um uh but not in a in your face more way. than 15 surely um, was it was it more than 15 yeah, years ago let me check but carry on um I, I always thought it was an affectation um just a bid for attention um just an attempt to make him seem more interesting um somehow it would kind of it sort of fitted with his his kind of slightly quirky eccentric comic persona um and it feels like um, you know that's how it started out. Um, uh, uh, perhaps a kind of throwback to um, you know the Boy George era, a kind of nod towards androgynous pop culture. Um, but it, 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 ha- he, he was then kind of um, then kind of you know the whole trans thing explodes and becomes deeply fashionable for about five minutes, and he then embraces you know, um, uh, the, the, the kind of, um, trans persona, um, uh, and, and it then tries to kind of parlay it into a political career. Um, uh, maybe, maybe the reason he hasn't been selected for Brighton Pavilion, which is probably 
the Wokus constituency in the UK, formerly, well, still is, I guess, um, what's-her-face's seat, Um, Caroline Lucas's seat, but she's retiring at the next general election, so Labour have a shot at winning it. Perhaps the reason they haven't selected him to fight this ultra-woke seat is because they don't really believe. It's not because he's trans, because they don't really believe that he's properly trans. They just think it's it's an affectation, and he's just trying to parlay what is a kind of sexual peccadillo into a political career. Um, But one of the things which surely counted against him is that um, he's um, going to be in New York performing his one-man show um, version of Hamlet um, during what is anticipated to be um, the general election campaign. And he said, well, he would, was it the general election campaign? He said he would campaign via Zoom. Um, but that that's 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 not that shows a lack of commitment. I mean, people like like you to kind of move to the constituency once you've been selected as the parliamentary candidate and kind of give up your life and just devote yourself um, to cultivating the constituency. So it's not terribly surprising if he's offering to campaign via Zoom, but is actually going to be living in New York, not even in the country that he hasn't been selected. But Brendan O'Neill said that um, in, a, in a recent piece for Spike, that if 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 Susie Izzard um, can't even get selected to fight the wokest constituency in the country, it may be time to give up, dude. Yes, I think there's something in that. And as you say, this idea, it might be, as you call it, a peccadillo, maybe a sort of fetish. I don't know. That's a suspicion. Maybe it's unfair with Izzard, but that's a suspicion, of course, amongst many the trans people now, not all of them. Um, it's very. You look through the Wikipedia; they're doing that absurd thing of calling him her like the whole time. So, you know, when she did her famous wolves routine or whatever, like it was always a woman. That is this weird kind of opposite to dead naming. What is that called? Like life pasting? What is what is that called? <laughs> uh, I think it. What is it called? Um... I don't know. Is there an is is there a verb to describe calling people by their preferred gender pronouns? I, I'm not even sure that he, you know, her, she is um, uh, Eddie Izzard's preferred gender pronoun because doesn't he kind of switch according to you know how the mood mm, takes no, it? He, or has he now become a, 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 a you know a, a full time? I believe he said it was she, her, but he's not going to get annoyed if you don't do it, which is great because he won't be annoyed with us throughout this um but that's that's his stance it's slightly less um kind of militant than than, than many people's because you know he's like you know he's, he's he's not too worried if you get it wrong but so does, does it he does now think of himself as a trans woman rather than gender fluid well it still says he identifies as gender fluid in the wikipedia and use it use it and calls herself somewhat boyish and somewhat girlish. She uses the word transgender as an umbrella term. When asked in 2019 what pronoun she preferred, Izzard responded, either he or she, and explained, if I'm in a boy mode, then he or girl mode, she. We have to check what mode he, he or she right. is in, you see. So, so that's what I thought. So why are Wikipedia going with the well, girl no, mode? no, sorry, because I'm out of... Uh, t- oh, I in see. 2020, so recently, she requested she, her pronouns for an appearance on portrait of the arts of the year and says she wants to be based in girl mode from now on so so she's based in girl mode i don't know i'm, I'm literally too tired and ill for this but wikipedia has certainly gone through saying that she was always she that's the, the thing i found the most absurd i mean that's the most absurd isn't it, is it like 
you know, in 1998, she did this and that. It's like, who are you talking about now? <laughs> Look, in 1998, Izzard appeared briefly on stage with Monty Python. As part of an inside the joke, she walked on stage with the five survivors. Who did? Sorry. And it's like, oh, the Eddie Izzard that was always a woman inside because he's now decided since 10 minutes ago he's based in Goma. So he must always have been a woman in 1998. Complete absurdity. It's so annoying. I think there's people, this is why even Brighton has just gone, nah. Yeah. Or is it because he's on Zoom and has no interest in politics? I don't know. Has he he tried to argue yet that um, he should be selected as a Labour candidate because women are underrepresented in the Parliamentary Labour Party? Same argument made by the bloke in a wig that Rachel McLean, the deputy um, chairman of the Conservative Party, has got into such difficulty for. Uh, for describing as a bloke in a wig, um, and it makes me think. Yes, yeah, part of his argument. He, he, he was this. This guy was a Tory party candidate in this constituency, and um, didn't fare very well. And um, what? Oh God, I'll have to do some research. Actually, was he ever a Tory party candidate, or did he fail to get selected who, as a Matt Tory party Viner, candidate? Matt the one who changed to Melissa Poulton. Yes, yeah, he was a Tory candidate who did who failed, I believe, and switched to Green and switched to a woman. Okay, and is now arguing that, and I think part of his part of the reason he was selected as the candidate is because they have this fifty percent of our candidates have to be women quota. Yeah, it's a good point actually. When you have your trans, um, when you have sorry your STEM people who are made in a lab or whatever, they'll probably all be trans, won't they? I said they're biromantic asexual. They'll probably all be trans to make sure they all get selected as Labour candidates, <laughs> and they can all do STEM and they're trans and they're Labour. How do you make someone labor in a lab? Do you have to sort of give them really, how do you like implant shit ideas into them in a, in a fake <laughs> womb? Is that possible? I think, well, I think, I think there are um, genetically influenced psychological traits that mean people are more likely to be left wing than right wing. Um, I mean, it used to be that um, if, if you had, um, People used to claim that uh, one of the reasons people were conservative is because they had an overdeveloped um, uh, disgust reflex. So if they found if 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 they were kind of germophobic, if they were easily disgusted, um, uh, then that explained why they didn't like immigration. They were worried about contamination. Yeah, famously, um, Hitler was a, uh, a clean freak. Yeah, um, but it, it, it feels like that that distinction has sort of collapsed now because you know um, people on the left seem more worried about you know being infected by contamination, being adjacent to people with wrong thoughts, than people on the right who seem a bit more open and tolerant. That's interesting, now. yeah, yeah. During the vaccine, of course, they they didn't want to be next to the unvaccinated. So that's interesting, yeah. Exactly, because they were the yeah. fascists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, height height talks about all these things. Yeah, purity being associated with the right. It is very complicated. Some of those traits don't really stack up. Apparently, openness doesn't really work as a measure. It basically just measures liberalness. Because I've I found it never works. It just ends up making all creative people be left wing, which is not really the case. Um, also, IQ is largely heritable. It's 0.8 heritable, I believe, which is about 80%. So the problem is, if you were trying to make STEM women in labs, right, they'd want to be smart and high IQ. But if you wanted them to be lefties, you'd have to make them low IQ. So how would that work? That's a bit tricky, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bit tricky. I think wasn't there that, but there was that recent. Um, I think I think I I, I think um, actually um, people who vote Democrat um, are, are likely to have. On average, 
higher IQs than people who vote Republican. And it was the same for people who voted Remain, for Brexit rather than Remain. Yeah, although I believe it's a bit more complicated. And I'm basing this just on nothing, but I believe they're more likely to be midwits and probably mm. conservatives are more likely to be outliers on the bell curve, right? That's what I always heard. With the thing, things, there was that thing about the vaccine, right. wasn't there? Yeah. So like the, the really dumb people, I'm not taking that what evil, you know, the bad juice or whatever. And then the top people like, well, the stats don't add up, which would be you, Toby. Yes. And then there's the yeah. midwits in between. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we've agreed roughly. Um, so poor old Susie is not going to get get that position. But uh, well, so will it, will he be doing Hamlet as a man then? One presumes. Yeah, I mean, I guess if he's now in girl mode, maybe it'll be he'll be a woman playing Hamlet, uh, and when he does Ophelia, that'll just be more as himself. But will he be a woman playing Hamlet as a man? Like, will it look like a man? Will it will it be dressed as a... I think it'll be dressed as a man because it's an acting role, right? But it'll be a trans... It'll be a woman playing a male Hamlet and then zooming in a, to, the, to yeah. the political campaign as a woman. But sometimes dressed as a man because, from Hamlet because he's just come off stage. <laughs> yes, that's a really good question <laughs> because you. one of the things that progressive theatre directors um, now do and are encouraged to do by artistic directors, people running theatrical companies, is to cast women in male roles because, you know, the male roles are often much more interesting. There are many more of them, particularly in Shakespeare. Um, so, and they get brownie points. They can virtue signal by, you know, um, casting women in male roles. Do you think they could achieve the same effect by casting Eddie Izzard, you know, in a male role? I mean, if you cast, if you cast, if you cast, Eddie to play King Lear, could you win brownie points on the grounds that Eddie's now permanently in girl mode? So you're effectively casting a woman as King Lear and in that way broadening opportunities for women in the theatre? Or would it be seen by female actresses as just another way for men to kind of monopolise every opportunity going? Well, yeah, it's genius, isn't it? You can say, look, we've hit our quota, but it's still a bloke. So, you know, we'll still be better. That's the that's the that's the way to sort it. Not that men are better at acting. I think it's probably one of the um one of the one of the professions where it's probably about even, you know, it's not like oil rigs, is it? So it's a good question. By the way, the Guardian dealt with it by saying Eddie Azard's one person Hamlet coming to New York in twenty twenty four. Interesting. The actor will play all roles in the Shakespeare play. Oh right, well that confuses it even more. So if he's doing all the roles, then he's he's men and women, right? Yeah. Oh, well, that's okay. Yeah. So I didn't realise that. I guess he's particularly suited to doing all the roles because yeah. um, he can, he's sometimes in girl mode and sometimes in boy mode. So not too difficult for him to play Ophelia or Barely even acting. Um, yeah. We're <laughs> probably a bit behind on that. It's probably well known, but you know, I just revisiting it in light of this failed campaign. Presumably, presumably his one man, one person, Hamlet one person. is a comedy, right? One, sorry. One well, person. not deliberately. <laughs> no, I assume it probably is. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you could see him actually making it quite funny. You know, one minute he's Ophelia, one minute he's Hamlet, and you have to guess, you know, whether he's being cast against gender or whether, you know, that, you can, you can, could potentially be quite he funny. He seems to be saying in this Guardian piece that it will be serious, that he's now serious about being a dramatic actor. So it's basically a male, now female comedian doing a dramatic role as a woman, being a man playing all roles. I think we pretty much nailed it. <laughs> yeah good well we've we've cleared that up i feel even more ill than at the start of the episode now but um 
just because it's so <laughs> draining. But um, not because it is and makes me ill. Let's clarify. So shall we? Or should, actually, do you want to do an advert quickly, Toby? Okay, sure. So this is an ad for a new children's picture book, which is distinctly unwoke, called Gilly Wakes Up. Are you on the lookout for children's Christmas gifts? Then the new picture book, Gilly Wakes Up, is exactly what you need. Gilly, a giant redwood tree, is waking up after his winter sleep and getting reacquainted with his surroundings. It doesn't take long for him to find that his friend Willow has been broken in a winter storm. He, Ember the Squirrel and her kits do what they can to help before finding out Willow is alive and well and can look after herself. The story has been written by Joe Robson. Joe has worked as a tree surgeon and has a passion for trees. Gilly Wakes Up showcases this passion and is packed full of facts, which are further explained in the Did You Know section at the end of the book. Gilly Wakes Up is the perfect gift for four to eight-year-olds interested in the outdoors. There's no hidden agenda or messaging, just a great story written with love and care, beautiful illustrations, and lots of facts about trees. You can get your copy on Amazon, Waterstones Online, or email Joe directly for a signed copy on gillywakesup at gmail.com. That's spelled G-H-I-L-L-I-E wakesup at gmail.com. Joe has done book readings at outdoor events and libraries where he's read the story and then led tree detective workshops. If you'd like a digital copy of the tree detective's activity sheet with your signed copy, just ask. So go to Amazon, Waterstones, or email Joe directly on gillywakesup at gmail.com. Happy Christmas from Joe, Gilly, Ember and Willow and Stay Skeptical. Nice. I love they got the Stay Skeptical in there. All right. Well, now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. I'm here with Will Jones with some of the top stories of the week. So, Will, um, the first story you wanted to talk about was the exchange between the Prime Minister and Hugo Keith KC at the Hallett Inquiry last week, in which Rishi, um, at, I think, um, to my pleasant surprise, um, brought up a quali analysis um, by uh, some professors, which was published in 2020, uh, which was effectively a cost-benefit analysis of the first lockdown. Did the first lockdown do more good than it caused harm? And the conclusion these scientists, professors came to was that, uh, no, it did more harm than good. And Rishi brought this up and was very quickly shut down by Hugo Keith, who in the process of shutting down Rishi Sunak referred to qualies as quality adjusted life assurance, which the letters quali don't even correspond to. <laughs> um, that would be Qualla. Um, in fact, they referred to quality adjusted life years, and they're an international tool for analyzing the cost effectiveness of various different medical interventions, including pharmaceutical drugs. Um, so, do you want to tell us a bit about that and why that was so embarrassing and revelatory? 
Yes, as as you said, Toby, this was uh, very pleasantly uh, surprising, uh, really. But uh, we knew that Rishi Sunak was one of the. He's often uh, pointed out, and he did during the the leadership uh, campaign last year. He points out that he actually was one of the more skeptical, uh, lockdown skeptical members of the the Johnson uh, government. Uh, talking about how he how he flew back. Uh, like the, the saviour from beyond the seas to the crucial uh, cabinet meeting back in December 2021, where you may recall that the government was actually seriously considering and about to lock down uh, again Christmas uh, 2021, two years ago, because of when Omicron first emerged. And he made much of the fact uh, he was he came back, uh, cut short a holiday, uh, he said, to, to to intervene and stop that, which uh, which seems to ch- check out and, and be true and good, and good on him. So, so yeah, so, so he does seem to have been one of the more sceptical uh, members of the government, and that came out as, as you said, at the at his appearance at the COVID inquiry uh, last week, where Ca- Professor Carol Sikora drew attention on uh, on X on Twitter uh, to this uh, this remarkable exchange where uh, where Rishi Sunak uh, points out to the COVID inquiry to the KC uh, Hugo Keith that. Uh, that in fact an analysis uh, was done, uh, a cost-benefit analysis, a quality analysis, uh, which is a very well-respected and sound way and rigorous way of, um, insofar as you can rigorously analyse uh, these uh, these things, a very rigorous way of of trying to work out whether an intervention, uh, whether it's um, pharmaceutical or non-pharmaceutical, whether an intervention is is worthwhile overall, whether it has more benefits than costs, and it comes out it's done in financial terms, so so they do so it's also in terms of whether it's value for money. And the actual analysis uh, we had written for us uh, on this was uh, Professor Carl Hennigan and Dr. Dr. Tom Jefferson. They wrote on their excellent substack, Trust the Evidence, and we uh, republished that. Uh, they wrote in uh, more detail, of course, this is their field, more detail about what this meant and what that actual analysis showed. And it actually showed that in a best, best case, that the, the quality value for lockdown uh, was 220, £220,000, uh, which is seven times seven times the nice uh, so the official government guideline on what on what an intervention should cost and that was the best case scenario a worst case scenario the quality value was 3.7 million pounds uh, which was an astonishing 125 times uh, the nice guideline and we can bet that the actual uh, the actual cost and the actual calculation will be more like the worst case scenario because the best case scenario will use very optimistic estimates of the cost of lockdown and very pessimistic ones about the the harm of the virus which we know was consistently uh, over exaggerated uh, during the pandemic so what that means is that they're just the lockdown was just in no way value for money cost far more did far more damage cost far more than it possibly uh, could have saved quality adjusted life years take into account how old people are when they die the effect um, on their standard of life so it takes into account the fact that someone is, is nearing the end of their lives that they're probably they may well be living in a nursing home uh, only have one or two uh, years left uh, to live and the, and if they're the victims of the disease whereas if the victims of a lockdown are young people uh, with their whole lives ahead of them and the impact on them then that is taken into account in this analysis uh, and so attempts to take into account all those things and Rishi Sunak was trying to point out to the lockdown inquiry this absolutely crucial point that these analyses which were which were done as you said in 2020 so 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 way back we're not talking about something uh, recent something done pretty much at the time that they showed that it really the lockdown really wasn't worthwhile and and shockingly but unfortunately not surprisingly the covid inquiry hugo keith shut the prime minister down yet again showed himself not remotely interested 
in hearing about uh, these cost-benefit analysis, in considering whether lockdown uh, may not have been the best policy, whether whether it was worth uh, the cost, the huge cost and harm as we're still seeing uh, today. Not interested in that. He says, I don't want to get into that. And as you say, misquoted what they were, called them uh, quality life assurance and models, uh, which, as you say, doesn't even doesn't even uh, spell quality. So, uh, so, and in fact, this is so much. We keep seeing this bias again and again. Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson have written about it repeatedly. They're not the only ones who've noticed it. This, this is being noted across uh, in newspapers and uh, by politicians as well, by huge, by many, many people. And in fact, uh, this week uh, we also saw that uh, the lawyers at Us for Them, uh, that great, uh, that wonderful um, parent, uh, lockdown sceptical, pro-child uh, parent organisation that has said that they are, have, has warned, has written to the COVID inquiry to say that they, they're minded to uh, ask, to sue it or ask for a judicial review uh, because of this blatant bias, which means it's just not fulfilling, that the task that it's been given is not being done in that impartial, even-handed way that it's required to do. Yes. I remember when bringing up qualies before and trying to undertake a back-of-the-envelope quality-based cost-benefit analysis of the lockdown just after it had been imposed in The Critic in late March 2020. And the standard response was, you know, how heartless are you? How can you place a value on human life? Um, uh, if, if these measures save so much as one life, then they'll be justified. And that was a common refrain whenever you tried to point out the enormous um, financial cost of of the lockdowns. Um, and it was also the response when um, Jonathan Sumption made a similar point um, on a television program in 2021. I think it was on ITV, might have been the BBC, talking about why he was a lockdown sceptic. And scorn was poured on him when he referred to qualies as a way of measuring whether lockdowns were a cost-effective intervention uh, for the same reason. How, how, can you, how can you be so heartless that you're putting a value on a human life? Well, the answer is, um, this is how governments, not just here, but around the world, decide um, what to spend money on um, in public health. Um, if you spend, you know, billions of pounds saving a single life, well, then there won't be any resources left to spend on other medical interventions, which might save many more lives. Um, it just seems, you know, it, it, it's it's common sense. Uh, but um, the lockdown zealots seem to have either had great difficulty grasping this basic concept, even though it's an established concept in public health around the world, um, uh, or they were pretending um, uh, not to grasp it because they were just so keen on lockdowns and didn't want to hear any counter-arguments. Anyway, um, uh, and Hugo Keith is absolutely typical of the breed, unfortunately. Um, so, well, the next story you wanted to talk about was um, the ONS finally acknowledged that um, uh, the UK currently has an elevated excess death rate although um, they didn't devote much attention to it. There was no granular, granular analysis of, of what the causes are, uh, but it, it at least noted and acknowledged that uh, we are currently um, experiencing um, a tsunami of excess deaths. Was it in the UK or was it just England and Wales? Uh, Brits, uh, I believe, 
so it's the report says that there are an extra 28,000 deaths or, or more than 1,000 a week were logged across the UK in the first okay. six months of the year, according to this uh, this analysis. So it was across the across the UK. Yes. Yeah, so this is this is the ONS finally in in an article in the Lancet, a top medical journal, of course, acknowledging this excess deaths crisis. They don't use the word crisis, but that's that's effectively what they're what they're saying. It's, um, extraordinary levels of excess death post pandemic. It's Sarah Call from the from the ONS and. Uh, along with researchers from Imperial College London, uh, Department of Health and others. So uh, really significant players in this whole thing. I mean, these are the people who are responsible for uh, watching over these statistics, collecting them, and also thinking about what needs to be done um, in response um, and advising advising ministers and government. Uh, so really, uh, really key people. Unfortunately, as you said, the, the article was not what we've been all asking for, because obviously we've been raising these issues uh, for, for years now, really, uh, where there's been... Uh, excess deaths uh, not associated with COVID have been elevated since the second half of 2021. Uh, that's when we first started uh, asking what was going on. So it's been it's been well it's been over two years now, and we've been a- asking these questions and asking these people uh, to address this. Uh, and instead, what we get is is this comment piece. It's literally one page plus plus references, but one page of text uh, in what's a, it's what's called a comment piece. It's not a, it's not a study or a paper. And they these researchers call for timely and granular analyses uh, to describe uh, the, the mortality trends and inform prevention and disease management effort uh, so that they're calling these people are calling for for these these studies and these analyses uh, and of course this is what we've been asking them for um, and they're the pe- people in the organizations with access to all the data they've got access to the confidential data that we don't have they, they know exactly what's what's going on in terms of statistics uh, so so really they're the people who should be doing it um, and funding it so uh, so it's extremely odd uh, really so they've acknowledged this uh, this issue uh, they've acknowledged it's ongoing they've acknowledged it's, it's going it continued into 2023 into this uh, this year so and yet uh, and yet we still don't have proper analysis and what we certainly don't have is analysis by vaccination status uh, which is uh, many of us uh, really, really want to see because there's just been this question uh, for for over two years now of are these excess deaths? Uh, many of them, of course, uh, being linked to cardiovascular problems. Are these are these excess deaths linked in any way to uh, the COVID vaccines? I'm sure our listeners uh, will have their own thoughts on that. But what we really need to resolve that question, as uh, researchers like Norman Fenton have been saying, is 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 we need the is we need the data by vaccination status um, and. Norman Fenton set out again uh, what's what's needed. Uh, he set it out on his um, another excellent blog. Uh, where where are the numbers? Uh, set out that um, he he set that out because at a meeting in Parliament a couple of weeks ago, the he was present and as as were a number of MPs and and peers. Uh, it was organised by Andrew Bridgen. It was about the issue of the vaccines and excess deaths. He brought uh, Andrew Bridgen brought together uh, a number of specialists, medical specialists, especially from the US, brought them over uh, to have this to have this meeting. And David Davis MP asked uh, Norman Fenton uh, what data was needed to settle this question. So, uh, it's good to see uh, some MPs actually being keen to have this question actually properly looked into and settled. And and Norman wrote uh, wrote what what that is, but but no response as yet. Uh, we continue to wait to see if we will actually uh, get the data, or these researchers will get the data uh, that they need to be able to uh, to ask to resolve that question, uh, one way or another. Uh, but this this article, which is coming back to the Lancet, 
uh, to the ONS article in the Lancet, Lancet uh, implied that the problem was likely to be uh, related to the, the problems in the NHS and and the lack of access to to medical treatment, timely access to medical treatment. Uh, and the Mail, the Daily Mail, in its coverage of this article, quote, uh, went to other experts who who suggested that it was uh, that it may be linked to poor lifestyle uh, that we've had since the pandemic. Uh, so. Uh, more collateral damage, if you like, but um, overeating, uh, rise in obesity, rise in drinking of alcohol, causing more problems uh, and causing a rise in uh, cardiovascular heart issues, uh, liver issues. So these are these are the alternative theories, uh, if you like, the alternative causes. But un- until that data is properly released, as these authors, these esteemed authors themselves said, for timely and granular analyses, uh, these, these questions are just car- going to carry on being asked. Um- I remember reading something by Ron Unts, um, who isn't a COVID vaccine sceptic, pointing out that there didn't seem to be any uh, signal in the noise when you look at different patterns of excess deaths across the world and cross-reference them with um, how vaccinated the populations are. So, um, for instance, um, I think he he said that Sweden... um, perhaps in 2022, had um, lower excess deaths than other parts of Europe, even though the vaccination rate in Sweden was higher than other parts of Europe with um, higher levels of excess death. Have you looked at um, that data? And have you considered that argument, which is, you know, a rebuttal effectively to the argument that the cause of these excess deaths must be um, COVID vaccines? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had quite a long back and forth with Ron at the at the time about that by by email to um uh, to try to uh, to drill down into into those matters. Yeah, the um the main point I think is with Sweden. That's Sweden. Uh, if you look, you can look on the the website. There's an excellent website run by the or using the data from the Human Mortality Database, uh, where you can really look at uh, excess deaths uh, trends. Uh, in, across, in across different countries, and you can really see on that that um, that Sweden has had significantly elevated excess deaths uh, in the same during this period since 2021, uh, running around about five five to ten percent. So similar to us, uh, similar to us, really. It is slightly lower than uh, than others than other places, possibly because Swedes have generally had lower lower mortality uh, mortality rate higher. Uh, life expectancy, but uh, but this this idea that that Sweden is some kind of exception uh, that doesn't uh, that hasn't seen these uh, these worrying trends in mortality since the pandemic doesn't uh, stand up uh, if you look at the data. Uh, so that, that that's the main issue, and the um, and other other analyses uh, which we've run on the Daily Skeptic, uh, although not recently, maybe we should maybe we should uh, put one out there to refresh people's uh, memories. But other analyses have have shown that there does appear to be, or there, there may be, or does appear to be some kind of correlation uh, between vaccine uptake, possibly, and an excess deaths. But all of these things are observational, and there's lots of different factors that, that go into them. The other the other issue is that, or the other evidence is that if, if you look at uh, the, the more highly vaccinated demographics in the UK, there's some really good data on that. So so whites, for example, rather than 
um, other ethnic groups or uh, higher income higher income groups the mortality rate in in those more highly vaccinated groups has has gone up more than in the less fa- less vaccinated groups and that's striking because those are normally the lower mortality the lower mortality groups but you can definitely see uh, there's a, there's a, there's possible but it's it's all circumstantial observational evidence without what we need is this this granular data but i don't think the case has been i don't think the case against against the vaccine cause has been demolished by the uh, by by the evidence by the data currently currently in the public domain um, and there's some indicate and there's certainly some indications that that it could correlate that with that but it's but th- th- we just don't have the proof yet either way okay all right um finally will you wanted to talk about um dame jenny harris's claim um that uh climate change will mean dengue fever spreading to the uk by 2040 um a claim that's now been rubbished by a mosquito expert do you want to tell us a bit about that yeah so this is professor dame jenny harris uh, you may recall her as being de- deputy medical uh, adv- what was she in the pandemic toby to be she deputy chief medical officer of um England. i think that's yeah that's what I'm, that's what I'm, I'm i'm aiming for that's right yeah uh so one of uh chris witty's sidekicks but afterward that she uh was elevated if you like to uh, the head of the uk health security agency the uk hsa which was the very the more militaristic uh security defense sounding uh successor to public health england and uh so she's in charge of that and she came out with quite an incredible claim uh, recently, she said that rising temperatures will make diseases uh, like like dengue, what did you say, dengue? I struggle to pronounce these. Chikungunya, Zika, uh, yellow fever, and other viral diseases that come from uh, this Asian tiger mosquito is will become established and endemic throughout Britain and and in in London in particular is going to suffer. So we're going to be more like these tropical countries that have these diseases, these these mosquito borne diseases as uh, and, uh, endemic. And she said that because of climate change, because of rising temperatures, this uh, this will be. Uh, this will become a problem for us in about, well, 15 years. But this has been completely rubbished by uh, Professor Paul uh, Reiter, uh, who's a retired professor of insects and infectious diseases at the Pasteur Institute in Paris. So he knows his onions, a leading expert in mosquito, mosquito-borne diseases. And he, he described these claim, her claims as entirely fictional, shameless uh, she, as he points out that uh, that while it is actually true that the uh, that the mos- that this tiger mosquito Asian tiger mosquito uh, has been uh, spreading, uh, that's been since the 1970s and has absolutely nothing. He said it is it is beyond doubt that this has nothing at all to do with temperature. In fact, it's probably mainly to do with the, the growth in the global trade in used car tires and vehicle tires. Uh, so nothing to do with climate change. Uh, and he also points out uh, that actually. Uh, malaria, for example, a mosquito-borne disease, uh, used to be used to be common in England. Shakespeare, uh, the bard, uh, the bard himself, mentioned malaria, uh, which he called the ague, thirteen times, uh, no less than thirteen times. So, it was, so he says it was clearly it was clearly common here, and so and, and that was during the Little Ice Age. So it had nothing, and and it's and it um, and and malaria ceased to be a problem in this country, uh, clearly for reasons uh, which have got nothing to do uh, with with temperature one way or the other. So, and as this this expert says, complete, entirely fictional, uh, complete nonsense, yet another uh, climate scare story that doesn't stand up to scrutiny. 
Um, and we had a sort of related story uh, we published this week by Chris Morrison. Um, he was, I think, on talk radio with Tobias Elwood, MP, um, who for a time was chair of the Defence Select Committee and I think is notoriously still a member of the 77th Brigade. Um, and Tobias Elwood said that climate change means that some of our battleships um, don't work uh, because um, they don't work in warmer temperatures if the seas are too warm. And this was presented as an argument against climate change or rather an argument for net zero rather than an argument for better designed warships that can cope with the Persian Gulf. Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit about that one, Will? Yeah, in, in, another incredible story, um, another ludicrous, ludicrous claim. As as Chris uh, points out, has has has, has our defence minister just uh, the former defence minister just let out a, a major military secret um, that we've been the British government has been keeping from our enemies, and in fact our warships become completely useless uh, if they venture out of the English Channel, or uh, or is it in, or is he in fact talking? Uh, complete nonsense. Chris, of course, suspects the latter, making it, making things up on the hoof, probably. Chris uh, suspects that he's probably misremembering a story of from 2016, uh, which found that Type 45 destroyers uh, did actually start work, working in waters uh, much warmer than Portsmouth uh, Portsmouth Harbour. But this was a major design fault uh, with the Rolls-Royce turbines. Uh, they lacked a, a vital turbine intercooler. Uh, and this was obviously a major, identified as a major problem and was promptly fixed and sorted out. Uh, this is obviously nothing to do with climate change, just poor design design specification and and has been has been sorted out. So just yet another an, another scare story. I mean, they, where do they get this stuff? I mean, we presume charitably that they just they just make it up because they're trying to fit in with the narrative and signal their virtue and uh, with their uh, with their peers, yeah, with their peers and and make them appear on narrative and to keep that fear narrative up. We assume that there isn't some central. Uh, central depository for for nonsense climate scare stories that is that is drip feeding to them by by email you know just e- emailing them with hey Tobias how about how about mentioning this on Talk TV I think we can probably assume that, that isn't the case so in other words our our politicians and uh, public officials are just seem to just be uh, making nonsense up what do you think Toby Yeah I think um, I don't think there's someone behind the scenes kind of operating the strings of the puppets. I think it's more like they, they're just kind of non-player characters who just kind of regurgitate whatever the latest group think is. And I think Tobias Elwood probably falls into that category. Uh, thank you very much for telling us about the top stories of the week. Great. Thanks, Toby. Well, now let's do our occasional section, which is X-Files. It's the X-Files. Maybe I should have said the X-Files. Never mind. I'm struggling today. It's a good one, though, because it's Tucker Carlson to start with. has launched Tucker Carlson Network, which is quite interesting. He's done a, an interview with Glenn Greenwald explaining it all. He also did a long interview with a guy who was explaining why aliens are definitely real, but we don't have time to go into that. Suffice to say, they're definitely real and they've been around for, for ages. So there's that. But yeah, Tucker's going to cover world news. He's going to get actual journalists on the ground covering stories like a proper news network, not just him in the studio sort of doing monologues. So that's very interesting. 
And he said you could do it quite cheaply. He says he's done that with just three people and things in the past before. And, and you'll get to cover stories that that just aren't covered otherwise. It won't just be the usual, you know, what Stolensky up to or something was one example he gave. He'll be covering stories you won't normally see, a bit like GB News maybe. But um, And they talked about is there a danger of audience capture because it will be subscriber-based. I don't think he was too concerned because he was pretty outspoken even with his previous audience. So that's very interesting. And then off, there's another similar related story that Elon Musk is going to have his own university in Texas with a $100 million gift from Musk. And it will start with a STEM-focused primary and secondary school. We keep talking about STEM today. And then ultimately it'll expand its operations to create a university dedicated to education at the highest levels with an experienced faculty and traditional curriculum. So my theme here is kind of a new infrastructure, a new infrastructure being built because it basically has to be because the woke have destroyed everything. But now finally these big players are coming out with their own networks and universities, Toby. Yeah, and I was asking you earlier whether the word for this phenomenon is parallelism, um, uh, with people thinking that the way to fight the woke capture of institutions, of the media, of the upper echelons of our society is to create parallel institutions. Um, but when I Googled it, I couldn't find um, parallelism being used in that sense by anyone else. So I think I've coined it. I think that's how I think I think I'm going to claim authorship of this one, Nick. And from now on, we should describe examples of this as parallelism. Mm. So, so it's a sort of neologism, but it's not because it exists and you're just recontextualizing it. So does that still count? I don't know. Mm. But uh, yeah, so he so, so Tucker's starting a streaming service, which uh, looks quite interesting. Um, uh, and presumably it won't just be it won't be kind of confined to Twitter. You can't, you can't, I mean, you can't use X, can you, as, um, is that, I mean, is he going to try and stream things on X? Presumably not. You can't use X for that purpose, at least not at the moment. But maybe, maybe Elon's going to make it more versatile so he can, or is he going to, is it just going to be, you know, you have to kind of download the app like Netflix and then you'll be able to watch Tucker TV. Yeah, I don't know all the, the, the ins and outs. It's going to be subscriber-based. That's all I, that's all I really know at this stage. Well, how, what do you think would be the best model? Well, um, I guess it would be quite interesting if you could um, somehow create a streaming service using the X platform, um, and certainly the you know the the quality when Tucker broadcasts it. I mean, when he, when Tucker, I guess when Tucker broadcasts his stuff on X, it is kind of like a streaming service, isn't it? I mean, you can watch it live, but then you can replay it anytime you want. So maybe he is planning to do it on X. I guess we should know. We should probably should have done some more research on this. No, one. no, he's, he's, uh, he's going guess- to do it in his own separate thing, which will, which will be, which will pay for it. will have a lot of free content as well, but they'll still keep putting free stuff on X as well. That's what I think anyway. Okay. Okay. Do you think this is a rival to our new um, podcasting and events platform? Well, that is one um, concern with it, all this. All these things are right. It's obviously a big space now, but all these things are kind of rivals to us a little bit. Yeah. But at the same time, it shows that there is a market for it. And, you know, if this is half yep. the world and half the country, I'm not too worried. And I would rather just mm. support people, obviously not Constantin, but but people like Tucker. <laughs> just kidding. I just yeah. think a funny joke to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, no, I'm sure it'll be a great success. Um, whether it'll be as successful as the Daily Wire, I don't know. Uh, in some ways, the Daily Wire is um, a more interesting 
media company than simply creating another streaming service because it's got kind of it feels like a kind of hybrid of a streaming service a youtube channel um a substack blog um they've created something new there um uh taking advantage of various different platforms uh and they've they've kind of that in some ways that feels a bit more interesting and innovative than what Tucker's trying to do, um, which will just be another streaming platform. So whether it'll be as successful, who knows? What about this Muscoversity? Would you go there? I've just invented that name for it. Yeah, it's quite bold, isn't it? Given that Trump universities, is, is there just one Trump university? Anyway, it hasn't been, it, 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 it's, uh, it's not a huge success, is it? Um, but uh yeah, I I think uh, it, it's 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 odd that he's going into higher ed when higher ed is in such a parlous state, um, and people will be quite suspicious. And you would have thought, given his you know um, uh, increasingly out there reputation, um, that it, it, it won't be a great distinction to have a kind of degree from Musk University. But perhaps I'm perhaps I'm being narrow-minded well, about it, and perhaps lots of employers will value a degree from Musk University. Yeah, surely they will. I mean, he the whole point is he's trying to save, or one of the many people now, like Jordan Peterson and Eric Coffin and so on, trying to save higher education, and you'll get a STEM degree from Musk, which will be, I'm sure, geared towards the kind of things he needs in his companies, and you'll mm. go straight into blooming Tesla or SpaceX, doesn't it? Won't it be ideal? Maybe. Um, I can just, you know, going to... I mean, I guess he's, he's a bit too much like a fascist. Like you go, you go like a dictator. You go to Musk University, Musk School, Musk University. Then you work for Musk. Then yeah. you live in Musk country, and then you go to Mars and <laughs> live in Muskland. Yeah, run by Musk. Uh, yeah. Um, no, but I, I think generally I'm sympathetic to people who want to create parallel institutions as a way of um, uh, winning the culture war. Um, so yeah, more power to his elbow. All right. Yeah, well, especially at this time. When, I mean, there was this interesting Christopher Rufo tweet today. He says, exclusive throughout her career at Harvard, Claudine Gay quietly built a diversity empire overseeing a racist admissions program, a sprawling DEI bureaucracy, and an effort to dename buildings and reduce the visual presence of white men on campus. So she's just one of the most evil people who's, uh, you know, been a large part of destroying the top universities. It's funny, isn't it? They've, they've destroyed themselves. Anyway... And maybe we should look at this as well quickly, that um, Netflix came back to X. So there were these companies that boycotted X, of course. I mean, it's not new, but then uh, several more boycotted Disney and so on. It was a massive boycott. But they've started to come back, and they sort of quietly returned. And it's interesting. that There was a long uh, thread about this, and it, the, the basic gist was that this is actually going to be a new marketing opportunity for advertisers. They, they go away because they're worried. But then they come back and find that their revenue is not affected. They'll then realize, oh, this is a new marketing opportunity, the free speech space where you can actually, mm -hmm. you know, make loads of money. Maybe you can keep your other stuff going at the same time. So this is quite interesting. This guy, uh, Farzad, made this long post about it. X has already won. And Musk said it had a lot of insights. And so, yeah, I mean... That's very interesting. That they, he says, the Overton window is beginning to shift, and with it, a massively profitable endeavor for advertisers. What do you, did you make? You uh, you read that, didn't you, Toby? What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think well, it, it, great if true. Um, uh, every previous piece I've read about um, X and the impact of 
Musk telling advertisers like Disney to go F themselves has said that actually this is going to make it less likely that people will, advertisers will return to Twitter, not more likely, or X. Um, but um, so fantastic news if it's true. Um, uh, it felt a bit, I mean, y- you said at the beginning of the show that you thought um, uh, we would soon vanquish woke, that... Um, that the kind of momentum behind the kind of anti-woke movement is is building. Um, and it seemed to be of a piece with that, suggesting that the Overton window is shifting and soon advertisers will recognise that being associated with free speech, being adjacent to people with a wide range of views, some of them seemingly quite contentious and outrageous, far from harming their brands, will actually benefit their brands and let's hope that's true um and no doubt it will be true in due course but it might be that this guy's slightly jumping the gun that that's certainly not true yet okay yeah i mean yes maybe not true yet but it's it's the beginning of the of the fight back yeah i've been quite bullish on it i just see all these constant signs that we are we are starting to destroy wokeness even though yeah we're not there yet because as we've seen from aviva or or the the RAF, or recently G, GCHQ wants to fly the transgender flight. There's so many examples we could get into. Yeah, it's only the beginning of the of the fight back. Um, all right, that's pretty much the X Files. I'm almost uh, yeah. Let's we do this. Let, all right, let's go over quickly and do our occasional section, which is across the pond. So I've got a couple of, of across the ponds. One of them we felt we had to know, but n- neither of us have got loads to say about it. Which was this uh, gay sex scandal involving Senator Ben Cardin of Maryland and a staffer who worked for him basically appeared to be, there's a video that allegedly depicts a male Democratic Senate staffer having sex with another man in a Senate hearing room. And it was a bit of a crazy story because, you know, we're told that, oh, Jan 6 is terrible because these people wandered around the Capitol and while people opened doors for them. But you, you can have sex in the Senate room, although you can't because they got sacked. Anything on that, Toby? Well, I was quite surprised by how explicit the video was. Um, I mean, s- certain things were, were pixelated. But yeah, I slightly regret clicking on that. Yeah, it was like, is that? I didn't realize that's how gay people had and, sex. I mean, it was yeah. an eye opener. And the funny me. thing is, uh, Eddie Izzard um, was playing all the characters. That's what you, you did. <laughs> <laughs> didn't realize. Uh, yeah, uh, that was uh, you know. It was, so I found it quite disturbing, and. Um, uh, perhaps that's you know perhaps that's that reflects poorly on me um but uh yeah no quite i guess quite 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 shocking that um someone should have thought it was appropriate not only if, if, to have sex in um a senate hearing room but to film it and then you know um allow people to get hold of it and post it on twitter um pretty inevitable i would have thought that you're going to be sacked for that 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 feels like you know a breach of your employment contract <laughs> yeah what i can't tell is if you're actually upset by seeing gay sex or just pretending to for virtue sake, like 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 <laughs> nihal you're <laughs> for pretending to just to seem really straight i don't know if you actually were not offended i can't really tell or did you i mean did it was it was it was a, i mean did when you clicked on it <laughs> I, which i didn't um really. did you realize that's how gay people had sex uh, you're talking about the sort of the angles. I only saw very briefly. Well, it it like, might have even been a still that I saw. I didn't really. It felt like one person was on top, right? Sort of sat on top, like yeah, yeah, riding the other. Yeah, yeah. It didn't look. I suppose I, I like rather unimaginatively <laughs> thought thought. No, I, when I pictured gay sex, I pictured something different. 
it looked kind of quite a lot, I suppose, a lot like heterosexual sex uh, in a way I hadn't anticipated it would. Yes, I know what you um, mean. Yeah. Yeah. You mean, yeah, I, I think we, I think we've grasped what you mean there. And uh, sorry to basically everyone listening, um, except perhaps the, perhaps the gay people who are probably more annoyed. Well, actually, sorry to them as well because they're annoyed by Toby's homophobia. So really, everyone comes off badly in that segment. Um, the other across the pond was just Vivek. Quite interestingly, he uh, he's, he talked about Van Jones, who claimed to be literally shaking after Vivek's recent uh, you know town hall, whatever they're called, primary debate. And he said, oh, he's invoking all these terrible things like great replacement theory. He's a uh, he's our new Trump. He's a new demagogue. And he list was even said he was actually shaking. I mean, like, really, Van Jones, you're literally shaking. You just invoked a meme. And just, Vivek talked about it in, in a speech and just said, oh, shut the fuck up. And it's quite interesting. You know, I was surprised to hear him use that kind of language. And it does raise the question, you know, are we better to avoid that for decorum? Or is it just the best way at this point to deal with the fake outrage and just go, oh, fuck up? So you're 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 not giving Van Jones the same benefit of the doubt you gave to Nikau. You Nino. don't think he literally was shaking with um, uh, rage because he was so upset by what Vivek was saying. Um, he was just inventing that fact. Well, um, to virtue, it was a bit convenient that he invoked like an actual meme phrase, which is like literally shaking, which is like a joke meme now on Twitter and things like that, where you're not actually shaking, you're just saying it because you know. You've seen something that offends you. It's a joke now. So I'm like, does anyone literally shake anymore? I mean, I do sometimes if I'm really angry. So maybe he really was literally shaking. It seems unlikely, doesn't it? Does it does seem unlikely. Um, I mean, you'd have to kind of, I mean, in a way, it's a, it, it's quite flattering to Vivek. Um, if, if something he says um, uh, can make you shake with rage um, because you think that's, that, that's kind of far right, demagoguery and it's dangerous and this is you know this is fascism i mean it's sort of it's taking it's taking vivek quite seriously isn't it um uh uh instead of just treating him as a bit of a joke um you know um who invokes these kind of culture war tropes in order to try and revive what seems to be a flagging political campaign i mean it's almost uh you know uh, it's playing into his hands isn't it it's 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 helping him in a way and teeing teeing him up to then tell you to shut the f up because um i mean yeah can i just say one thing i don't think he was shaking with rage in a manly way like i do he was shaking like with emotion like literally shaking like oh like it was like a fence and fear Fear. Is that what he was claiming? He was claiming that he was terrified of Vivek because uh, he's so dangerous. Something like that. <laughs> that seems... I mean, I can imagine many, many authentic reactions to Vivek. And I, I, you know, I don't dislike him. And I like some of the things he says. But uh, shaking with fear because he's so terrifying, that's... that. That I cannot imagine. Well, it's general emotion. When you're, when you're literally shaking about things like the right say, you're, you're not... It's not rage. It's not quite fear, but it's it's just general emotion. It's like you're overwhelmed with emotion. You're basically crying about what they say. It, I don't know. It's pretty pathetic, mm. though. And, and I, I suppose our debating of whether they really are responding in that way or only pretending they responded in that way it's is um, it, it, maybe maybe it's not a kind of meaningful distinction because you can easily imagine kind of people who are as committed to woke dogma 
as Van Jones kind of making themselves shake. I mean, a lot of emotion isn't authentic just because it's an emotional response. People can often kind of trick themselves into responding to something in an emotional way, but it's nevertheless completely inauthentic. <laughs> Such a Toby view. Yeah. Emotion's not authentic. I don't trust emotion. Such a sort of autistic. Well, people view. often people often treat people often treat emotions as though if you're if if it's an emotional reaction, then at some level it's authentic. People can't fake that. But often, you know, emotion is just a kind of an extreme manifestation of groupthink, isn't it? Uh, when people start crying when they're watching, you know, uh, Britain's Got Talent, um, uh, is that is that an that they're so they're so moved by you know the story narrated by Anton Deck before some person who's triumphed over tragedy appears on stage and belts out, you know, a classic. Uh, Whitney Houston song. I mean, when people respond emotionally and start streaming with tears, would you describe that as an authentic emotional reaction? Or are they just being manipulated? Are they just, uh, you know, are they just, or are they sort of trying to t- pretend to themselves that they are a kind of more feeling, deeper, more easily moved person than they really are? I mean, to me, there's not just because a response is emotional and involves shaking or tears doesn't make it authentic. In the same way, I'm never that persuaded when, you know, men cry now when they win a victory in a kind of sporting tournament uh, of some kind, particularly tennis players. I'm always having this argument with my wife, you know, she thinks that there's something, she, she really likes the fact that Andy Murray kind of quite often tears up when he kind of wins a victory. Um, but to me, that's kind of, it's, it's not authentic. Um, it's just him kind of going with the crowd, just him being kind of influenced by groupthink. And often, you know, an emotional response is just being swept up by the crowd and reacting in the way that's going to please the crowd and reacting in the way you think you ought to react rather than it being a kind of an authentic, organic expression of the way you genuinely feel. Okay. Is that autistic of me? Uh, yes, but I can answer all of these questions. <laughs> One, when people are crying on Britain's Got Talent, if it's when I was on there, they're crying with laughter because, of course, I, I got four yeses and smashed the gig. <laughs> Number two, uh, well, I'll answer in different order, but, yeah, I think I have seen very manly men in boxing fights cry, but it's imagine the sheer relief when you've been in camp, you've been eating, you know, right you've been training two twice a day you've been getting your weight right you've been building up for ages the guy's been insulting your wife and your family and then you beat him in a 12 round boxing match the sheer relief i can imagine you, you could have some tears and i could give you a pass but i do know i do i know what you mean though it's become too acceptable to cry as men in the public sphere and they genuinely generally shouldn't but i might give like a tyson fury not that he's i don't think he's done it but I'm, if he did or uzik i might give them a, a pass um but as to your other point, yes, in general, emotion is is female propaganda. You, you, you didn't say that exactly, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. But did you know, you probably did, when a woman cries, a man's testosterone temporarily dips. You know, we always try and help women when they cry and we go, oh, I don't know mm-hmm. what to do. And we get worried. Uh, our testosterone temporarily goes down. Did you know that? And does women's estrogen level temporarily increase when a man bursts into tears? Maybe that's one of the reasons men cry more readily because they know it makes them more attractive. No, that goes down. Women's attraction will go down when men cry. I suppose this is related to our debate about whether um, uh, people uh, are certainly more likely to complain about um, the effects on their mental health of being surrounded by white people now than they were 30 years ago. And is it because they were just um, suppressing 
their thoughts about that because they were more inhibited 30 years ago? Or is it just become fashionable to articulate those sentiments now? Ditto with crying. I mean, of course, people would have been equally relieved uh, to win a tennis match or a boxing match 30, 50 years ago, but that doesn't mean they burst into tears. Is it that they're just is it is it that they were inhibited then? And this sort of goes to the whole debate, doesn't it, about kind of men and mental health and kind of being more openly emotional. The kind of Prince William view is that fifty years ago men were bottled up, they were encouraged to keep a stiff upper lip, they couldn't really express how they felt, and that kind of was terribly damaging to their mental health. Now they can be less inhibited and they can just express how they really feel. And that's supposedly good for their mental health. To me, that seems like a very simple minded um, uh, interpretation of why men are more likely to cry these days. To my mind, it's just um, symptomatic of, you know, living in a more feminized society, being required to show emotion because it's kind of uh, uh, socially more acceptable than suppressing emotion. It's just men showing themselves to be, you know, more easily manipulated and, you know, being swayed by groupthink than perhaps they were in the past in which individualism and a bit more self-restraint and self-command was prized more highly. Did you say Prince William then when you meant Harry maybe? I just—they're both—they're both on—they're both—they're both, on, oh, they're they're both, both, on, yeah, they're yeah, both, they're both on this one. They're yeah. both pretty well on that one. Yeah, I remember—I can't remember exactly who it was. I think it was an American politician. I remember there was a, something about how he just cried a tiny bit and was sort of—it was—it was seen as a bad thing by society at large. And I, I can't remember—you know—a certain amount of decades ago, but I, I can't remember the example very well. But you're absolutely right, Toby. We should get back to where you don't cry. You just—you know—maybe punch a wall in private if you really have to. Uh, you know, that's the rule. In the North, you don't cry. We didn't We didn't have it. I, we, it's only that you, have, you, you go through like, you, you go through a toll, you know, when you hit, hit like Birmingham or something, then you're allowed to cry. There's like a toll booth. But um, in the North, you actually, it's, it's actually illegal. Yeah, it's, it's, it's disappointing, isn't it, that um, women now seem to prize men who cry above men who exercise some sort of emotional um, self-discipline. Um, because it, that is one of the reasons that men are much more likely to cry and be kind of emotionally incontinent and generally kind of um, portray themselves as weak and pathetic. Well, they think they do, and that's the big flaw in society, isn't it? They that women are going for certain sorts of men. They think they want them, but actually they well, maybe. don't really, and they they basically want the they want the right, far right men. So it's sort of bait and switch. What they, what they, t- they tell men that what they find really attractive are kind of um, men opening who up, are, are opening up, crying, talking about their feelings, um, can empathise with them, just want to listen to them, talking about their problems, etc. Um, but actually, so, so men then do these things in the hope of attracting women, but actually they find them sexually repulsive and are attracted in reality to people like Andrew Tate. Exactly right. And the only time, Toby, I can picture you crying ever is if QPR won a title. Yeah. Well, luckily, we'll never, well, unluckily, It'll we'll never, never be able to test that hypothesis. <laughs> Toby will never cry, everyone. It will never be seen. Okay, that was a strange digression, um, but interesting to some, hopefully. Now let's go and do everyone's favourite section. It's Peak Woke. So, loads of Peak Wokes this week. Almost too many. I thought I might start with Will Ferrell, who um, 
he came out and said a bizarre thing at a, not a bizarre thing, a kind of typical thing at an awards ceremony of some sort. And he said, this is such a wonderful event where we honor and support and continue to fight for women in all facets of the entertainment world. But you know what? Forget about the entertainment world. Isn't it just time for women to run the planet? I'm not just trying to placate you, I swear. But I don't know what else to do because we men, we've been running the show since, what, 10,000 BC, something like that. And we're not doing so good. So please, can you guys just take over? Can you? I think it's time. I love this idea of men aren't doing a good job. It's like, Will, we took us out of sort of fighting every day for survival to now you can make, you can live in unimaginable luxury and a kind of paradise by making silly films, making people laugh by saying that San Diego means a whale's vagina. That's your job. And you get, that's men built that, Will. That was built by men. So, you know, a bit of respect, please, Will, for your ridiculously privileged position. What do you think, Toby? Any comment? Yeah, it's, uh, this did seem like kind of, um, again, kind of uh, just um, virtue signaling that he didn't really believe. Um, He just thought it would win him points with that particular audience. Um, what, what what female leaders is he thinking of who've who, who who are so much better than male leaders? I mean, Jessica Ardern, um, Nicholas Sturgeon. I mean, <laughs> their track record, if anything, is even worse than than men's. Um, it's it's not as if um, I would have thought. You know, a much more interesting position, though obviously much more controversial and likely to get cancelled is that actually since public life has become more feminized since women have entered public life at scale since we you know women are running bureaucracies in some cases running governments so the world has actually become much less successful um, at dealing with catastrophes crises uh, the pandemic being the kind of paradigmatic example putting safety first uh, exhibiting their risk aversion uh, wanting to kind of spend enormous resources to protect the vulnerable in the immediate here and now regardless of the catastrophic consequences for the economy i mean if anything um, all the evidence points to the fact that the more women have entered public life and got involved in running running the place the kind of more catastrophically we've done um if anything you know <laughs> the opposite of what he said is true i'd love him to have done that the, the, the awards i mean apparently it was the um hollywood reporters women in entertainment gala great to be here guys at the women in entertainment gala but if you look across the board since women have taken over haven't things just gone downhill Jacinda Ardern, just start, just live, you can see why your book is called How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, Toby. That's just such a Toby <laughs> take. Isn't the more interesting take that our feminized culture has actually ruined everything? And that, but you're right. Of course, you're absolutely right. Women suck. It would be, it would, it would win so much. I mean, I thought he's supposed to be funny, isn't he? He could have kind of, you know, he could have given it a Dixon-esque twist so people yeah. weren't quite sure whether to take it at face value. You could have said, ever since we gave women the vote, things have just gone disastrously wrong. We have to get women out of public life, back into the kitchen. You know, it could have been quite funny. I never know when you're going to start shouting. That. that was like the weird bit when you um, did Braveheart during the live show, which uh, I don't know how people felt about that, but it was, it was certainly entertaining. Um, Toby, I've got so many. Do you want to do a Pete Woke, though? Yeah, okay. Um, what have I got? I've got... Um, yes, yeah, so the RAF Club um, has banned this uh, family charity um, because um, they 
uh, hosted an event. Uh, it's called the Family Education Trust. And at their annual conference uh, in June at the RAF Club in London, um, they invited as one of their guest speakers the ex policeman turned gender critical warrior, um, Harry Miller. And um, when footage of his speech was posted on X by the Family Education Trust, the RAF Club announced that um, this trust, this this charity has now been banned from holding events at the RAF Club because um, Harry's such a transphobe. Um, It's odd, isn't it? But um, the more conservative and traditionally kind of um, uh, uh, British an institution is, um, the more likely it is to have been captured by the woke mind virus. I mean, it's extraordinary how 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 much the army um, and all the armed services and the security services have been completely captured. It must partly be because they're aware that they are perceived as small C conservative and feel that this is a kind of terrible problem and affects recruitment. Um, and so they've just, they just bend over backwards to try and seem on trend and kind of woker than woke. And this is just another example of that. Yeah, and another one that I alluded to earlier was the uh, GCHQ wants to get permission to put up the transgender flag, also the autism pride flag, your favourite one, Toby, the progress pride flag, all these ones. Normally you just have the union flag and maybe something else like a Ukraine flag occasionally, but they want to fly this. We didn't even admit this whole organisation existed till 1983. Now it's just showing off transgender flags. I mean, everyone's going to find it for one thing. Though I did I did think there's something in the autism flag because, you know, Shering used to work for these guys, and he was almost certainly autistic in a good way. Um, did you see this one? The movie trailer for the American Society of Magical Negroes. Have you seen this? This has been on the mm. X trending. This is unbelievable. First, I thought this must be a parody. Then I learned it's not parody. It's, it is satire, but it's a real satirical film. So the key difference there is when I say parody, I mean like a two-minute thing of a film that doesn't actually exist, presumably parodying wokeness. Or even a pro woke thing, but a short thing. No, no, it's a it's a feature length satirical film, and of course it, it builds off the trope that Spike Lee popularized around two thousand one, which is that the you know there's this black people magical Negro trope where they just they're merely to help white people before suddenly vanishing from the plot. So you could have imagined a kind of satirical movie about that, especially if you did it in about the nineties or something. But you could imagine that being reasonably amusing. But of course, it just goes full woke. And says that white people are the most dangerous animals on earth. And if you watch the trailer, it's just full critical race theory. When when they feel uncomfortable, white well, they had this phrased it weirdly in the paper, but white people feeling uncomfortable precedes a lot of bad stuff for us. That's why we fight white discomfort every day because the happier they are, the safer we are. So it builds on that fake, on that myth that you know cops are just shooting black people all over the place. As we know, they actually shoot far more white people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The stats don't back it up. And George Floyd died of an overdose, but it just—it's just this ludicrous idea that white people are dangerous for black people and so on. It was just—it's just a full-on woke racist movie. Yeah, is it—is it, is it a Disney movie? <laughs> no, I don't know who's making it actually. I need, I need to check that. But okay. yeah. So we mentioned um, Rachel McLean, the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, earlier, um, who got into trouble for describing a bloke in a wig as a bloke in a wig, and um, and. 
the police investigated her um, and uh, they've concluded that um, actually um, describing a bloke in a wig as a bloke in a wig is not actually against the law, at least not yet. Um, but they have recorded her saying this as a non-crime hate incident. Um, so uh, I thought that was that was pretty extraordinary, um, given that the expression of gender critical beliefs is now protected under the Equality Act. Um, and one thing that makes it quite odd is that when the Home Office issued statutory guidance to the police about um, what to record as an NCHI and what not to record, they gave lots of examples of gender critical comments which shouldn't be recorded as non-crime hate incidents. And yet, apparently, this particular police force didn't get the memo because they've recorded her description of this Green Party candidate as a bloke in a wig as a non-crime hate incident. Uh, pretty pretty ridiculous. Yeah, as opposed to just an obvious fact. And just because you asked, Toby, it's Universal Pictures. It's Focus Features, which is a part of Universal Pictures, which is a part of NBC Universal, which is a division of Comcast, but not Disney, apparently. But uh, Okay. Honest, um, fun- I, this bloke in a wig thing, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, what was funny about it is that um, it couldn't be more obvious. I don't know if you've seen, you, you've probably seen it. I have the, seen it, yeah. Um, that it couldn't be more obvious that it's a bloke in a wig. I mean, it's a really bad wig and a really blokish bloke. Um, and um, uh, in no universe could um, this man pass as a woman. It's just like he hasn't even made an effort to pass as a woman. Um, he's just, you know, got up one morning with a five o'clock shadow, bit of a hangover, has a cup of coffee and a fag, and then pulls on this blonde wig and then claims to be a trans person and, Lo and behold, becomes the Green Party candidate in this constituency. Um, yeah, he hasn't gone all out like Eddie me... Izzard, who's a genuine no. beautiful woman. <laughs> That's right. Um, but uh, it struck me that you know, if if Dom Jolly wanted to revive um, Trigger Happy TV, it would actually be quite a funny. You can imagine quite a funny series of stunts, a kind of running motif in the new series, uh, the kind of anti woke version in which Dom Jolly dons a blonde wig and then kind of goes around applying for jobs um uh going go, going out on a date um trying to you know that he's described himself as a beautiful woman he turns up and you know like and films the reaction of people and if they in any way kind of notice that he's a man in a wig he then screams transphobe you know, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and tries to get a policeman to arrest them. I mean, it, it, it could be quite a funny kind of recurring candid camera style stunt, couldn't it? But I'm not. I, I don't think Dom's going to go for it. No, probably not. Dom's a little bit woke these days himself. Yeah. Um, we can't miss this one, Toby. Boston mayor defends excluding white people from Christmas party. Michelle Wu threw this party for electeds of color. Electeds of color. It's quite hard to say because it's a made up thing. Mm. electeds of color and they and they, there was an apology but the apology seemed to be that they weren't supposed to be emailed it, it wasn't for like <laughs> the systemic racism it was invitations went out by email and uh that they just went out by mistake like oh sorry about that but that was just absolutely i mean i mean whatever it's just her and Nihal should hang out at the secret non-white also party. what what's odd is if you look at the picture of michelle Wu, the boston mayor um She's white. I mean, she's yes, she's Asian, but she's basically white. I mean, what color does she think she is? Um, and but presumably she thinks of herself as an elected of color, and feels um, 
you know, um, a member of an oppressed group. Um, but I thought, I thought that you know, isn't it, isn't it these days a bit presumptuous of Asians in the American sense um, uh, uh, to describe themselves as people of color? Um, surely they've been kind of moved over into the white column along with Jews and are now thought to be the oppressor. And that's why it's perfectly permissible to kind of limit their numbers at uh, institutions like Harvard. I mean, she looks clearly Asian. I don't know if, if you want to get out some sort of color chart, Toby, for your university. I don't know how it would work. But you are making a good point that the Asians are part of the people being discriminated against by the woke when it comes to university admissions. So yeah, maybe more and more people will become effectively white like you say, so maybe you're right. I think you know, she does look Asian, but I see your point. Uh, anyway, elected to color. It, it, but it, yeah, it's it, it's a reversal of um, you know the the pattern fifty years ago, whereby people people who were genuinely uh, non-white would try and pass as white. Um, now the opposite is the case, isn't it? Um, yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, but you know what? It's so weird. We have to spend so much of this episode discussing race and what race people look like. <laughs> and we we were we did we had temporarily defeated all that, hadn't we? But now we're back into weird, minute descriptions yeah. of who's how white people are. Amazing. Anything else, Toby, on the yeah. Pete woke? I've still got loads more to be honest, but uh, I've got a ton more. I'll just see when we do one more, which is. Um, well, we haven't done anything about the um, trans guidance, have we? Um, but oh, yeah. The Mail had a story today about um, on the even before um, this new trans guidance for school has been issued, some teachers are refusing to comply with it. I think the Mail have slightly got the wrong end of the stick um, in that um, the guidance has not yet been issued to schools. Um, it's just gone out for consultation, I think, Today was the first day of the consultation, but the consultation doesn't close until March. So um, uh, it hasn't yet been issued to schools and may yet never be issued to schools. Um, uh, so people are kind of reacting to this as though it has. But um, yeah, the, 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 one of the, so the guidance doesn't flat out ban um, gender transitioning of children in schools. Um, but it's reasonably robust. You can see that Kemi Badenox had a hand in it. Um, it says that teachers cannot be compelled to use the preferred gender pronouns of trans pupils. Um, it says that the schools shouldn't um, be complicit in the transitioning of school children without their parents' consent. That's, what's, um, that's what the teachers in the male story are saying they won't comply with. They're saying it's, uh, uh, it, it's, it, it will be a breach of confidence for teachers to inform the parents of a pupil who tells them that they feel that they are trans, um, uh, that they have to, if, 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 if a child wants to wants the teacher to keep that a secret and not tell their parents and the child's confided in them, then they're not going to tell their parents because that would be a breach of that sacred bond of trust between pupils and teachers, which is pretty absurd, really. I mean, teachers should never promise to keep confident what children tell them. I mean, they might be, for safeguarding reasons, that they have all sorts of obligations to pass on um, things they're told by children. I mean, if a child told a teacher that they were being molested by their parents, the teacher wouldn't feel that they had to keep that a secret because otherwise they'd be betraying the child's confidence. So it's not exactly 
that it's not that they're appealing to some inviolable principle. Um, uh, it's more that um, they just, on this particular issue, you know, they 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 sympathise with the children who are wanting to transition, and um, if they think that their parents are likely to object uh, for perfectly sensible reasons, they're just not going to tell their parents, which is pretty outrageous. Yeah, it's appalling. We did it on headliners last night. Andrew Doyle, who's been a teacher, said there's never a situation where you can offer confidentiality to a child, and you always have to be clear that you can't do that. And anyone who wants that is 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 to be questioned, definitely. Um, one last peep, what then maybe Gen Z or Gen Z, well, there was two about them, really. There was this one that they, they were complaining about low pay, crappy food and fitness tests in the army and that you have to just do what everyone says, which was hilarious. They're complaining in TikToks about the army being the army. But another one, Gen Z suffers from menu anxiety when dining out with many too scared to order their own meals. At this point, you just go, this is so peak woke. 86% of Gen Z adults, I don't know whether to say it's Z or Z, guys, but whatever, aged 18 to 24 in this study, admitted they've suffered from menu anxiety when dining in restaurants compared to 67% of all respondents. Well, that's still quite high for all respondents. 34% reported feeling so anxious they wind up asking other people at the table to speak to waiters on their behalf. What can these Gen Z people do, Toby? I mean, is there anything they can do? Apart from being genetically engineered stem free, a bit more robust. Yeah, yeah it's, I thought it's, I was uh, fragile. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 yeah, um, it's it's like they're trying to out fragile each other. It's like every time you think they couldn't be any more fragile, they suddenly come up with something that triggers them, like clapping. Yeah, um, uh, it's it's like menus. What having too many choices on them? Uh, you know, I mean, it, it's not difficult to kind of choose what you want for a menu, is it? I mean, it's like they want to live in North Korea, in which they have no, they don't, they don't have the anxiety of having to choose what to eat. It's just potatoes with every meal. They're totally broken. I always wonder what's going to happen when they take over because they really don't know anything. They haven't watched any films, and they can't choose menu items. They're utterly broken, Toby, by the world. Um, we seem- do you think? Do you think this? Do you think this means actually that they'd be more like they, they'd actually be quite grateful um, when they're forced to eat insects because at least that'll absolve them of the need to make any sort of choice. Although perhaps there will be, you know, it'll either be kind of crickets or cockroaches. Mm. Um, uh, so it might might not be the solution they're they're looking for. Yeah, they'd probably just one insect just fed to them every day in a set amount is what would make them happy. Yeah. The freaks. Yeah. Anything else, Toby? We love Zoomers, really. I, I, I think that's enough, Pete. Okay, work. it's probably enough, Pete. Well, we've done a long episode given I felt, if I haven't made it clear, absolutely awful throughout. Um, but that is pretty much it. I will quickly review the reviews because we only have one here that I want to read, which was from the live show, which was a great, great show. And I'm sorry I was struggling this week, guys, but the live show was amazing. And someone here has written, funniest thing I've heard in ages, five stars. I've just listened to the live podcast. Nick absolutely came alive with a live audience. I look forward to listening to the podcast every week and wish I could have made it to the live event. Stay skeptical and let's win this war, Bob. How about that? That could almost have been made up because it's it's so good. Uh, that was really nice. That was such a great review. And I'm actually, I've seen another one here. Let's just have a look at this one. Love you. This is good. Five stars. First thing is, can you get your paper list and sort it out so I can give you some money which you so deserve? It's like I've made these up, Toby. People are literally saying, can we give you money? <laughs> Secondly, can you make one of your live events on a Friday or a Saturday so mere mortals like me who are working during the week and don't live in London can come along? Good point. We did have one on a Saturday in the past, but we have the venue with a special deal on the Monday, I believe. So what do you think, Toby? 
Yeah, we do. We have we have this special arrangement with the Hippodrome whereby we can do it uh, on Mondays at Lola's, the downstairs bar. Um, I think it's probably too popular on Saturdays for them to give it over to us. Don't um, say that. But maybe we could we could we could we could, we could do um, at some point. We could, I'm sure we'll do another event at, uh, on a Saturday. Okay, but thanks to everyone that came, and it was really great. And uh, yes, once more, thank you to everyone. If you want to help me out, go to buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon. You can leave me a digital copy there. It's just a little donation. Buymeacoffee.com slash Nick Dixon or nickdixon.substack.com. And the only other thing I'd urge you to go to is my latest episode of The Current Thing, where speaking of Zoomers, I was interviewed by a Zoomer, and Rory is a very rare, great Zoomer who's very smart, very wise beyond his years, a young man. And he has a podcast called The Radical English Gentleman, and he interviewed me as a sort of one-off episode instead of me having a guest. And I got ridiculously honest and personal. We also did politics as well. And I just really I just really got into it. And, and he asked me very personal questions most people don't ask. So if you thought I didn't share enough already, then you should listen to this podcast on the on the current thing. I've just called it Nick Interviewed by a Zoomer. So check that out. Toby, any plugs? Uh, yes, I wanted to plug. So tomorrow we've got the um, Free Speech Union Christmas party. Um at the Backyard Comedy Club in Bethnal Green, the home of Comedy Unleashed. and um, Lots of people listen on Wednesday, along. so just make the date clear. You're talking about Wednesday 20th. Sorry, no, yeah. I'm talking about tomorrow, Wednesday, December the 20th. It kicks off at 7 o'clock, curtain up, I think, at 7.30. Dominic Frisby is the host. We've got a bunch of really good comedians. It's very cheap to get a ticket. I think it starts at 20 quid. Uh, I'll be there come along come and say hi i'll be at the bar uh, during the two or three intervals um so yeah hope to see some of you there it'll never be as funny as nick dixon during the weekly skeptic live but it'll be pretty funny i think the first time i ever set eyes on you nick was at the backyard comedy club in bethnal green uh, by the way if people want to come to that just google fsu comedy fsu christmas special and eventbrite and you'll find it I love the way you say set eyes on you as if you were just stunned by my by my boyish good looks. Um, but thank you. Uh, so, okay, yeah, go to Toby's event on the 20th. I might not be there because I feel like crap, but I'm sure it'll be great. Wednesday 20th. Anything else, Toby? Well, we're about to have our, our Christmas fundraising appeal at the Daily Skeptics. So um, that's going to go up on the 23rd. So if you feel like giving a Christmas gift to the Daily Skeptic, if you enjoy our work and reading what we do every day then please do give us a christmas gift this year yeah christmas has crept up on me i'm really not ready because i only get two days off anyway i don't really see it as a holiday for me obviously it's important because it's the birth of jesus christ but other than that i'm like i barely noticed it but yeah happy christmas trevor because we won't see you again before then so yeah i guess until next week happy christmas and stay skeptical happy christmas stay skeptical 